Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, Nolan Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, it's premiere week. It's premiere week, but we've already sort of discussed some of the premieres, so... Which is good, Yay because... And us! Like, we have so many premieres to talk about, and if we hadn't already talked about the premieres that we'd seen previously, then it would this be... This would be four hours long, and... Yeah, it would be way too long, and then I would have watched The Good Doctor, because I wouldn't have known that it was bad and I shouldn't watch it, which you yeah. kindly told me, and maybe you would have yeah. watched The Brave, and... That we would have no, been... no, there was no chance of me watching the Brave. <laughs> I still didn't watch the Brave, so yeah, yeah. Well, it's all good. That, that, that's just my one contribution to the pilot discussion. So <laughs> gonna hold on to that. Uh, watching it so y'all don't have to, unless it's your thing, in which case I think you'll enjoy it. It's not terrible. Anyways, um, we wanted to mention right up at the top this week. Uh, there's been some you know premiere pickups like Young Sheldon got picked up for a full season. Shocking, no one. Yeah, I know. <laughs> We're all. Horribly surprised by that. Um, but, I, but there's been a few other things like that in the week's TV news. But really, for me, the big TV news um, is that Julia Louis-Dreyfus uh, announced on Twitter uh, the other day that she has been diagnosed with breast cancer. And that uh, is certainly, you know, was a really shocking and surprising and saddening announcement. Um, being a super class act as she always is, she she used her announcement of her diagnosis to immediately channel attention towards healthcare concerns and healthcare for for all in the country, and like been like, don't worry, I have all of the money and the good right. support system, but a lot of other people don't. Julia, we drive as being classy as ever. Uh, yeah, that I just it just was really you know stunning the way she said in her announcement: one in eight women. Gets diagnosed with breast cancer, and she's one of them. Um, but yeah, it's still always... It's like, oh yes, they're people. These are people, and bad things can happen to them. Yeah, but also just like the awareness that she demonstrates with that is really significant. Like, to your point about, I have a lot of money. In Even if she wasn't like consistently working with Veep, it's yeah. like, the syndication checks alone. <laughs> yeah. Well, and... like. Yeah. She comes from mega money, too. Like, Oh, does she? I did not know that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, I okay. had a pony growing up money. Yeah. Well, so did I. But didn't I we mean, all? Who didn't yeah, have a pony growing yeah, up? Yeah, who didn't have a pony growing up? No, I did not have a pony growing up. I lived in the suburbs. I yeah. did not have a pony. <laughs> you left. But actually, where I grew up in the suburbs, there was a farm with horses, like, two blocks down that we would oh. see. So, you know, did, you, did you hear... Did you have pony envy? No, I never wanted okay. a horse. Like they're they're lovely and all, but I never was like, ooh, I'll take care of that horse. He can live in our backyard. That was never no, no, it was never my thing. Um, but we're getting distracted. Um, obviously, our warm wishes to yeah Julie Dreyfus and anyone else who's dealing with you know medical medical concerns like this and like that, that's a terrifying diagnosis. Um, and again, handling it you know at least publicly with with a lot of grace. 
Right, and so much grace, but also just, like, with a degree of reassurance, circling back to what we talked about, like, last week at the top of the show with mm-hmm. Kimmel and Graham Cassidy being basically shot down Yeah. Um, before it even gets to, like, the floor for an actual vote. And then we just have to wait a month for the next last-ditch effort. Yay! Uh, <laughs> yay! Uh, can, can I just take a second to say a big thank you to all those amazing ADAPT protesters? That have right? been killing it all year, yeah. but like again, uh, once again, this last week. Obviously, we're going to be talking about premiere week this week, which includes the return of Speechless, and you know, fine, like one of the very few representations I can think of of a disabled person on TV, particularly played by a disabled actor. There's not that doesn't yeah. happen very much, and showing the strength um, and the resilience of. Not only people with disabilities, uh, but families of those with disabilities. Um, and I think you could see that in Speechless, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But you can also see that on the news you know, with those those badasses that adapt. Um, yeah. yeah. No, it was really it was really good and really it was just a weird week overall. Yeah. Um, so but it was it was nice to have that moment play out. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, We heard from a few of our listeners this week. Um, We heard from, I wanted to specifically mention Brandy, uh, who reached out because she was, because last week, you know, we talked about uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Murder Mystery Dinner Party, um, and she was a backer of that Kickstarter, and so I appreciated, Brandy, hearing from you with your thoughts on on the, the... I guess, series, those 11 episodes. And also, apparently, there's another... Uh, a series movie i think it's a movie but it might be a series from a lot of the same creative team called the case of the gilded lily which is a uh, noir parody which oh. is even mo- somehow even more so, wheelhouse yeah no so wheelhouse oh no <laughs> <laughs> but uh brandy just mentioned being uh you know very happy backer like so so like okay you know, it was very, we're very pleased with the, with the product, uh, the, the series and had a lot of fun with it and is looking forward to Gilded Lily. Um, we also heard from Carl at the beginning of last week talking about American Vandal. Now this is a Netflix series. It's like a parody of true crime. Yes. Right, yeah. Have you Serial... watched any of this? No, I haven't. I saw a trailer for it and just went, I kind of want to see that. But then I, I've been really busy on the weekends lately. Mm-hmm. So the time in which I would normally watch like a Netflix series has been significantly diminished for very good reasons. And so I haven't tried it, but I mean, like Miles McNutt um, over at TV Club was just raving about it the week it came out, like constantly. Like mm-hmm. if I had checked my phone, he was tweeting about it. I know uh, Eric Adams also over at AV Club yeah. is writing up a piece about that in another series for next week and is really enjoying it. I- I've been seeing a lot more, not just at the AV Club, but a lot more discussion of American Vandal this week than when it came out. Uh, but Carl said, I- I- I'm really invested in the case on that show, What's Wrong With Me? Uh, nothing's wrong with you, Carl. Uh, as... Why Why wouldn't you want to know who drew the penis? It's, it's So what is the premise, Noel, for those who don't know? So it deals with a high school student who is um, potentially wrongfully expelled from school or suspended from school for uh, graffitiing a penis onto school property. I'm pretty sure that's the premise, hence the term American Vandal. But it's this winding sort of exploration um, uh, in the true crime serial vein Mm -hmm. of why... of what he did, what he didn't do, what he maybe did, mm-hmm. and all this sort of stuff. And the trailer for it's cut together really well, which is all I've seen. But it even had a really solid hashtag of who drew the dick. And 
or something along those lines. And that's a very good hashtag. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a quality hashtag. <laughs> well, because we were talking about this, you were saying you know you're inter- interested or intrigued by Netflix's marketing strategy for this one, right. and then you mentioned another series that I hadn't even heard of. So what right. is this? Right, so this is like I want to say it's called Neo Yokio, uh, which is from one of the uh, front men for Vampire Weekend. I think is what the band is called. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in an anime style, but and animated by a uh, production IG who's a major uh, studio over in Japan, but written written by Americans, uh, fully fully voice acted by Americans, including like Susan Sarandon, Jason Schwartzman, Jaden Smith uh, voices the lead. And this was something I did not know that was happening until Friday when it all dropped, and I saw a bunch of pictures of people who don't watch anime tweeting pictures of the main character holding a massive um trobolone trobolone that big candy thing that people get toblerone toblerone yes um and i was just really confused because i just went that is not an anime that was airing this season Mm -hmm. i know (laughs) so why are you watching it and it wasn't until i got back because i went to the washington state fair on saturday it wasn't until i got back home on sunday that I knew what was happening and realized that this was a Netflix series that had like zero promotion. But somehow a number of people that don't watch anime were aware of it, watched it, and were like seriously interested in it. Even though the reviews from where I like spursed out um, were not particularly impressed with it. And I watched the first episode and was very not impressed. It's not good um, based on that first episode. But yeah, it's just Netflix is degree of investment i think just in part because of what they prioritize but also because of what they really care about um it's just it's interesting to see what they really care about and what they're willing to just sort of let people discover yeah no definitely and like which things get you know plugged a bunch on your feeds which things right. are, are popping up and the recommendations and everything yeah it's it's certainly interesting and that's how with so much insane <laughs> such an insane amount of content they need to have an approach because we, you know, they tried just like, dropping something every week and that was not working for them in the earlier yeah. part of the year. So it's interesting if they're shifting up that, you know, approach. Um, this week at the end of the show, we'll be uh, spotlighting the Star Trek Discovery premiere. So that's both the Vulcan Hello and Battle of the Binary Stars. I'm or- so excited to talk about this with you. Yes, we will. We will. <laughs> Have thoughts. Um, but that's coming at the end. Before then, we have a full week in TV. We have, like, at least at least five or six premieres and at least a few finales, too. There's a lot to talk about. So uh, we're going to dive right in. We'll take a break, listen to a little bit of music from Speechless, and be right back with our Week in Comedy. Oh, God. 
that was Cedric Yarbo uh, singing his cover of <laughs> Brandy, uh, You're a Fine Girl by Looking Glass on this week's episode, uh, premiere, I should say, of Speechless. So first up this week in comedy, we're talking about the Speechless premiere, W.E. Weir, B.A. Back. Then we have, oh, I should say, W.E. Weir, B.A. Back! Exclamation point. Um, then we have Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Big House Part 1, uh, Superstore, Grand Reopening, uh, Will and Grace, 11 Years Later, The Opposition with Jordan Klepper, uh, September 25, 2017. These are all the premieres that we're going to do. <laughs> then we'll switch over to finales. I'll talk a little bit about the Difficult People finale, The Silkwood. We'll both talk People of Earth's finale, Game Night. Then we couldn't, like, we weren't going to not talk about, you know, the good place, Dance Dance Resolution, or the return, the glorious return of DuckTales with Day Trip of Doom and the Great Time Chase. They're all going to have exclamation points, aren't they, Noel? Yes, they are, and I can't wait for you to say them every week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first up is Speechless, and you, you have, you put in the notes here, all caps, I miss this show, and I put next to it. I figured out how to do emojis in our notes. Specifically, I saw that, and I was very excited about the fact that we can do emojis in the notes now. Yeah, so, so that I could put a hard eyes emoji. I love this show. I'm so glad it's back. And it came back in fine style. I think we both agree, yes? No, super fine style, and also in a way that allowed folks who had maybe dipped in and out or never watched season one to understand what the show is about in a really terrific way that allows allows them to see the show for what it's going to be mm-hmm. but also gives a great deal of pleasure to folks who watch the show really consistently in season one so this was a really good season two premiere for me yeah i mean it would have been a little confusing i guess if you'd never seen it before but i i mean as long as you knew it wasn't supposed to be the pilot i think you'd be fine yeah Um, just jumping right in um and i I really like the way that they threaded the needle between repeating the same beats over and over again and Mm -hmm. you know changing all the characters so so when they have them all become their new and improved selves you're like or or not new, but significantly less improved selves. Yeah, right. <laughs> Diminished selves. Um, you know it's not going to stick, but I appreciated right. that they, at the end, they didn't just all revert. That they, yeah. you know, that they're going to try to be something a little different. Something in the middle. And I, I yeah. think that's, uh, that's a good call for the start of the second season. We talked about how terrific and how consistent the first season was. It's going to be hard for them to maintain that, and and having a little shift in the priorities and the dynamics of the characters is a really good way to start off on a strong foot with that. It really is, because just this idea that Jimmy knows that, A, there's coffee and donuts and parking spaces if he shows up to work on time. (laughs) I feel like he'll start showing up to work on time maybe, like, twice a week, just for the donuts and coffee. Yeah. Maybe not for the red jacket, but definitely for the donuts and coffee. (laughs) Oh, but... No, it was just a really good reintroduction to the series. I really enjoyed sort of the polite lampooning of Fresh Off the Boat and the suburban mom power walkers in a formation. And I just went, oh, you guys are watching one another and you're talking to one another and I'm very much here for this. (laughs) 
we'll see if they maintain it, but having a semblance of the community of the neighborhood, I think would be, would be a useful tool for them. The way that they've built out a few presences at the school, uh, like the principal and some others, if they wanted to do some of that in the neighborhood, that would be a good, you know, again, new vehicle for, for conflict and or hilarity to ensue. That would be a good idea. And I think that would work really well for them. Um, I, I think the one thing I want to ask you about, though, mm-hmm. is um, how, how, how dis- on a level of like one to ten, mm-hmm. how disturbed were you by Mason Cook's voice changes? <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually really liked it. I thought, you no, know, I did, too. But it was also just like his voice dropped like three or four octaves <laughs> between seasons. And I was deeply charmed, and but also a little disturbed by how different ray sounded that but as someone who works with kids that is not unusual like so and you usually don't see shows fully embrace that the way that i think i feel like this one did it didn't try to pretend time hadn't you know passed and so yeah yeah someone who's seen students go away for a month and then come back and you're like are you the same person? I guess you are. You look, the facial structure is similar, but you just has a very different, you know, aura or personality to you. Um, I, I thought that that was actually really neat the way that they incorporated that. Um, and, and again, it's the same idea as I was saying earlier about the show, not being afraid of change and also not yeah. trying to do too drastic of a change all yeah. at once. Um, I really liked giving them both, um, sorry, them both. Poor Dylan. I'm ignoring Dylan. <laughs> giving, giving our two male children on the show um, love interests and uh, and finding uh, some some heart and some uh, humor in both of those. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the gray streaks. I yeah. I squeezed so hard when I saw that she had a gray streak too. Uh. Like Kate, I I was I was so happy when I noticed that gray streak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if I bought Dylan throwing all the money out the window. No, I did. I did not buy that at all. Yeah, but... I was expecting her to pull out the wad of cash when the gas was too expensive. You know, like yes, and they're like, oh, but they could have done, yeah. You know. But fair enough. I feel like with their background and the way that they've engaged with money issues uh, as pertains to Ray, that you know seemed like that should have affected Dylan in some ways as well. But you know, it was a, a nice little comedic beat. So. This is the only little off thing for me. Otherwise, I really love the premiere. And once again, such a terrific vehicle for for Minnie Driver, especially in this episode. Yeah, it is. And she's having a lot of fun just like being like, I'm going to be on a Stairmaster. Mm-hmm. And just I, she it's like the perfect vehicle for her. And yeah. I'm just really glad that someone finally figured out how to use her really well. And of course, I can't not mention such a Yarbrough. Uh, whose voice is lovely, and I really enjoyed that sequence. I that like such a great idea and a lot yeah. of fun. And I was watching it immediately, going, "Oh yes, you should be excellent on the podcast this week." <laughs> Musical <laughs> cue, determined. Um, anything else you want to mention, or should we move on to Brooklyn Nine Nine? No, let's move on to Brooklyn Nine Nine. And I mean, just beef baby, good <laughs> beef baby. Yeah, You're good good beef baby. <laughs> so my two main thoughts: Toby Huss. Yes. I'm so glad he's everywhere right now. That's wonderful. It um, is. And my other thought is, how is Gina getting so much makeup? <laughs> she has so much makeup on right now. She does. She does have a lot of makeup on. Um, no, not sorry, not I, Gina. Sorry, Rosa. How is Rosa getting so Rosa, much makeup? Yeah. yeah, Yeah. no, I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't know. I can't answer that. Yeah. But I thought this was a lovely premiere again. Really fun. Um, ridiculous. Absolutely absurd. Yes. But they yes. were never going to go for realism anyway. No. So, But they don't go for realism, but they go for commentary about realism, which I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's one of the, the, like, the stealth things about Brooklyn Nine-Nine across its now fifth season, which is still sort of mind-boggling to me that we're in season five. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's just like, I don't prison's so hard and it's just not as hard for trans people and it's just like what and like agreement from the warden and Mm -hmm. just a whole like very brief acknowledgement of how really difficult our prison system is for trans people but also just for in general how really sort of not great our prison system is (laughs) bold stance here not great (laughs) not great no it's not great it's not great guys but just the fact that they're like they've always really consistently sort of especially through Peralta worked this kind of stuff in mm-hmm. that it's just it's really good to see a show about the police force even as they sort of don't always engage with what that means necessarily within the current political and climate that they still make space for small asides to go right but also this thing and mm-hmm. I think that's really useful when they're also when they're also doing ridiculous things about explaining to a prison crime lord the benefits of sprinkling uncooked noodles on top of ramen soup. <laughs> uh, I also, I of course, had to enjoy the battle with the cable company. Oh God, it was too real. <laughs> you also get epics now, so that's great. Um, yeah, I, I was wondering how they were gonna how they were gonna resolve that because they answered that question way too easily yeah. um when when asked by rosa so um that was fun um what was your favorite part of the episode blonde boil or uh the the reaction we get from amy as she's overhearing on the phone what was the better stress reaction um definitely boil i think just from the she because i initially thought it was just sort of a boil dream sequence and then Ah, uh, it was so good. How long do you think so they're going to keep the blonde hair? I want them to keep it all season. Yeah. Uh, no, they'll they'll get rid of it as soon as uh, Peralta and uh, Rosa are out of prison. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, they'll keep it as um as soon as he's as soon as they're out of prison, it'll 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 go back to where it was because I don't think he wants to wear that wig. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh. I gotta also mention the ridiculousness of Hitchcock's girlfriend. Um. Something none of us ever needed to see. I don't know the name of the actor who plays Hitchcock, but seriously, the commitment to that character is so terrific. Right, no, both of them, um, Dirk Blocker and I forget which is which. Um, they're just Scully deeply Hitchcock, committed, yeah. deeply committed to Scully, uh, Scully and Hitchcock, and it's why Scully and Hitchcock work week week to week because otherwise they're just like really sad one note jokes, and instead they're these guys with really deep weird lives that the show can mine for this sort of comedic material, and I really appreciate that they're not a joke that again five seasons in we're not tired of yet. Yeah. Um, okay, the next episode we have here is Superstore, and this was the one that I went to first. I was like, right. oh, Superstore's back watching you first. Um, and again, I'm just so glad to have it back. I think it's such a fun show, and the, the dynamic of the characters, the way that they, what they shake up and don't. Another entertaining wig in this episode as well. Um, yeah. I think it's oh, working gosh. really well here in, is this season three? Is this season four? 
it's season three and yeah no i mean they they're just like oh right we got we got full season money this year so we're gonna redo (laughs) our set and that was very exciting um and but i liked how they worked it in as well so that was fun but yeah no i liked sort of like dealing with the fallout of everything but i also liked um their sort of way of resolving the not resolving but moving forward with the amy jonah tension and doing it through just seemingly mandated nbc comcast universal product placement of minions Mm -hmm. and just how all that played out was just really really funny and um yeah it's just really good and i i'm i still love everything that jonah does even (laughs) if it's forcing someone into a minion costume or guilting Garrett into giving him a place to stay. Yeah. Um, it was just really good. And I was, I was really happy with all of this, even including down to Howie Mandel going like, no, sorry, this was booked by my appearance agent, not my talent agent. So I, I can't do any jokes. <laughs> yeah. The Howie did not work <laughs> super well for me, but I, sure. I mean, I'm always going to enjoy Dina yelling at people. So, you know, that's... She that... yells so much, and she's so unimpressed. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's delightful. So I, even that part of it, you know, like like you're saying, even that part works for me, um, even if it was the least least um, interesting. Um, I really liked putting um, Jonah and Amy in the Minion costumes as they're having a serious conversation. Uh, and just, and the um, just very pregnant pause as Jonah isn't sure if she's serious. Uh, about her proposition, uh, it was was again another really smart move, super fun visual, and I look forward to having Superstore back in my life week to week, along with Brooklyn Nine Nine, along with Speechless. These are all shows we're very glad to have back. But Noel, are we glad to have Will and Grace back? I did not get a chance to watch this premiere yet. Eleven years later, should I watch this premiere? No, you should not, Kate. Um. Okay. This was really weird. Um, I, I should preface by saying that I sort of like soured on Will and Grace um, towards the end of its run. And I can't tell you why, because it was before a time in which I was like cognizant of reasons why I just stopped watching things. Um, and so like when it ended, I don't think I I don't think I've ever even seen the finale of this show. Uh, well, sorry, it's not the finale anymore. The ser- the season eight finale of the show, um, I haven't seen. And so, um, so all of this sort of, from what my understanding does, undoes a lot of that. Will and Grace are ne- friends again, even though they weren't friends in like the series quote unquote finale. Their kids are sort of friends, I think. Mm-hmm. But so they're living together again. And so what this episode basically feels like is... Imagine if someone had written an episode about 2017 in 2006, and that's what this episode is. Like, the jokes are really tired. Um, The humor about Trump, about how these guys are all sort of awful, um, feels sort of vaguely tone deaf. Like, Will wants to get together with a congressman who is implied to be a Republican, but is definitely rolling back energy requirements. So he goes to a Rose Garden ceremony with Jack, uh, while Grace is uh, has been asked through Karen to redecorate the Oval Office. Okay. Kate's making, Kate's making a face that is the correct face to make. 
And none of it's particularly funny because there's no satire to be really had here. There's no fresh jokes to be made about the state of being gay in 2017. About no, there's there's nothing here. And the the jokes that happen, like Will and Grace have a pillow fight in the Oval Office, and their whole thing becomes again about them, which is. I think one of the reasons I stopped watching the show because every conflict ended about being about their weird codependent relationship that they were both seemingly uncomfortable with but never willing to do anything about. And that weird degree of self lack of self-awareness was just really sort of frustrating then and it's really frustrating now. And it was just really it was weird because Again, it fits with their characters that they're not self-aware that they really haven't moved on in 11 years. But also, even politically, they sort of haven't moved on in 11 years. So, like, the episode ends with a uh, a MAGA, Make, a Gr- Make America Great Again hat, on a chair in the Oval Office. But it's been re-stitched to say Make America Gay Again with the HRC logo on it. And I immediately went, the HRC does a great deal of work. But it's also something that's come under fire within the past, like, five years for a variety of reasons to which we go, Will and Jack, Grace, Karen, etc. probably wouldn't necessarily care about those things, but they're super prevalent to folks now. So having, like, the HRC emblem emblazoned on, not emblazoned, it's small, but it's also really present on the hat and it's present in Will and Will's, like, patio doors. And you just go, but we've we've sort of shifted past this a little bit, everyone, to something else. And we're thinking more critically about this. And this feeds into the second episode, which I won't talk about, even though I watched it. And it's also very awkward and weird. But it's it was weird to come back to this show and the show sort of behave as if everything was sort of window dressing and that they could just keep doing what they were doing 11 years ago. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't work. Um in some ways it's 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 getting to the core of who the characters are and what made people like the show that makes sense. But if you want to take on if you if you want to somehow sell the idea that Grace is a notable enough designer that she's redesigning the White House and you want to engage with that stuff then, you know, First of all, she would never be hired to do that. Um, Second of all, uh, if she was, then she was tapped into the current political scene enough that that would happen, then you'd think that she'd be more aware of some of these other issues. But Willa Pliskin over at Slate had a solid review about how the show is maybe personally, but I feel like it's inadvertently about white liberal hypocrisy. Yeah. And I, I do feel like that's giving the show far too much credit. Because the show is sort of endorsing them, especially mm-hmm. in the second episode, uh, much more than it's making fun of them or judging them for their stance. And again, this is particularly in the second episode in which Will off screen gives a very long lecture about the gay, the history of the gay rights movement to a 23 year old mm. um, who he's attempting to sleep with. <laughs> And it's just this sort of weird awkwardness that I don't think that the the show wants to poke fun at, but it doesn't want to drive away its audience either. And you can't, you can't do that. You can't have your cake and eat it too in this instance, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Especially in a place where 
identity politics are so central to everyone now, regardless of whether or not you buy into the concept of identity politics. And hint, if you're not buying into it, you're buying into it by not buying into it at this point, (laughs) that a show that's not willing to really fully engage with that in a way that feels critical or self-aware just feels a little weird and stayed. And that's sort of the best way to describe this uh, season nine premiere is weird and a little bit of stayed. And yeah, so I don't encourage you to watch it um, if you were even considering watching it. But yeah, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't consider, I wouldn't, I wouldn't carve out time for this. So I guess that answers my question. Are you going to watch more of it? No, I've, I've watched the second episode. Uh, they made the third episode available on the screening side as well. But after the first two, I just went, I- I'm set. I'm good. So I'm probably not going to watch any more. Um, but it's a sure sign of how NBC really desperately wants it to be like 2005 again by Science or Magic. If they went ahead and renewed this for season 10. Already. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also starting this week, premiering this week, was The Opposition with Jordan Klepper. Uh, and this is a daily show uh following the daily show uh, in the style more of the colbert rapport and talk about trying to reclaim previous victories <laughs> would really like this to become the next colbert rapport of course it's styled after uh, infowars and alex jones as compared to you know the the colbert rapport styled after bill o'reilly the o'reilly factor um this was okay um but not great the first episode i I don't know how well I don't think based on this episode that the 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 format and the approach works as well as it needs to mostly because I don't buy Klepper in his okay. persona at the at the heart of it at the center of it um you have to fully commit with to a character like this like the one he's going for but the show wants to be able to and I heard other people say, you know voicing similar things um so I don't think I'm alone in this, but my reaction was that the show wants him to be able to channel this figure a la Colbert channeling, you know, his... O'Reilly, fa- yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, Colbert being... Colbert, Stephen Colbert being Colbert, you know. Um, but it also wants to be able to wink at and make fun of that at the same time. And you gotta, you like, just you gotta fully 100% commit. And there aren't many performers out there who can commit with the intensity of Colbert. And that's what this needs. And I also think it does not work to do a format like this or an approach like this and then have guests on and try to have, like, yeah, Noel's making a face. Yeah, they have guests on. So the first, um, the first guest was an interesting... Um, figure I don't remember his name as a writer. He had a book um, talking about basically this idea of um, the fracturing of of the media landscape and also uh, fake news. But like going back hundreds of years, um, and oh, okay. uh, yeah, so, so it was interesting and, and a fitting first guest to have on this show. But when Colbert had guests on, he stayed a hundred percent in character. Klepper isn't able to do that as well. And uh, it's not fair, really, to him, to Klepper, to keep comparing him to Colbert, except that the shows are set up as such direct parallels. It's really hard not to. Um, so I I just think that, for me, I wasn't interested in, in tuning in for another one. I'm sure there will be people who will, but I, I feel like, for me, there's already so much out there in this vein as far as 
people doing this kind of a thing but being serious and not satirical with it that I don't think this is good enough to draw a strong criticism of that and for me it just kind of adds to the noise um so I'm really looking forward to Robin Thede's new show I'm I'm hoping that that one will will be more successful um but yeah for me this one just is like I, I can see what they were trying to do but it's not for me the right combination of host and premise and when and how it's airing. Maybe this is something that would work once a week, but I certainly don't want to tune into a parody or satire of Alex Jones every single day. No, no. Um, so like it needs to be more heightened and more ridiculous if if they want it to be funny enough to be worth it, and this one is not for me, uh, so yeah, it's trying to. It's a little too interested in getting people to laugh, and not as comfortable just making people uncomfortable. Uh, if it was more comfortable in discomfort, then I think it would be more successful. Uh, do you do you think you'll check this one out at all? Yeah, well, I, I tried to actually, mm -hmm. um, but Comedy Central didn't make it available on my video on demand service. And so I just kind of went, well, I'm not going to watch it on the Comedy Central website, even though their website is actually much better than it used to be. But I just went, I don't care enough because a lot of ways, like Alex Jones is already very much a parody of himself. And I don't need to watch a parody of a parody, basically, at this point. Um, because I'm, I'm not intimately familiar, but one of my friends sends me just random Alex Jones clips because he's obsessed with just how sheerly ridiculous this man is. And it's really difficult to, like, do something that isn't... that a number of people take very seriously, but also that doesn't have necessarily, say, the wider cultural impact that Colbert's targets did when he started his show. And this feels very... The idea of doing an Alex Jones slash Infowars sort of parody feels very tapped into a particular audience, but at the same time, you, like you were saying, you need that sort of dedication to making this work because, again, Alex Jones is very deeply ridiculous. And without really being able to crank that up to... 13 because Alex Jones is already at 11. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure what the point of the show would be necessarily. And what you've described, particularly with having an interview segment, seems really dumb. That it just seems ill conceived. But it's also like their first week. So time to work things out, figure things out. Like, I mean, even our beloved nightly show needed a little while to sort itself out um and clepper may be the same way but i'm i just don't see the point in this existing really yeah well we'll see how it goes if you are, are checking this show out listeners and you've seen more than just the first episode which of course is all i've seen um and you think we should give it another shot let me know um and i will tune back in but for now i'm i've got enough tv to watch so that one's slipping off the radar um also finishing up this week is my viewing of difficult people because they had their season finales uh of season three the silkwood 
In this episode, Billy and Julie, uh, well, Billy is moving to L.A. Julie goes with him um, to get him settled. And then they, by the end of the episode, they're back um, settled in New York again. And it's been, it's a, it's a really fun episode. I assume I also, like Julie, would instantly burn upon setting foot in L.A. Um, but uh, the, yeah, again, the way that the season has approached its politics and its world building has been really fun and creative in this episode a giant sinkhole opens and swallows like the entirety of jupiter florida which is where pbs is centered so <laughs> julie's boyfriend is uh out of a job uh oh, okay. has to go but to he's congress. not dead though right no he's not dead no he has to go okay. to congress to get funding to rebuild pbs because like everybody died um okay. with like a few exceptions so so there was a lot of again really ridiculous stuff like um corporations are now people and they have their own but they can also have their own militias so so, um, sephora is like taking over an entire neighborhood of new york and it's like a whole thing there's trackers to be fair sephora makes really great clothes from what i understand so i would not mind if they took over (laughs) (laughs) um but um yeah, the way that they handled that was really funny. The subplot with one of their one of Billy's coworkers ending up in Scientology was really funny. Um in, in the Sea Org. Um that worked really well. The it, it was a nice end to the season and certainly one that I think at the beginning of the season it was a little heavier handed with some of their world building, but I think the way that they the balance they struck by the end of the season was working really well and was a good vehicle to, you know, like to, to motivate some plot craziness, uh, but also to let the creatives and let the show interact with the current political landscape um, in a way that feels satisfying and feels like it has meaning to them without being a direct one-for-one thing. And I think that's a much more successful way to go than the, what you were describing Will and Grace trying for. So, um, yeah, I, I do think... I, oh, and we had another, you know, we had John Cho's character back and the implication at the end of the season that he and Billy are still dating. So hopefully he'll be back next season as well. Um, yeah, it's been a, a really, really fun light and at times dystopic <laughs> third season of of difficult people and that is not what i would have expected before the season started so uh, i really enjoyed this season and i think it's a i think it's a i think i guess maybe it's on par with season two it might be a little better than se- season two um i'm not sure which one i, th- I think maybe season two was more consistent for me but uh on the average i think maybe i like season three a little bit more um but yeah another one that i've certainly enjoyed have they said whether or not they're gonna like stay in this vein, or are they gonna like Patrick Duffy in the shower, season oh. four? And no, be they're like, gonna stay in this vein. I, they're I, gonna I, stay in this vein. Okay. I haven't heard anything, but based on the 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 personality of the show and of the creatives, you know, at the center of it, I would be very surprised mm-hmm. if they didn't like double down on this okay. world that they've built. Yeah, definitely. Okay, no, I was just curious. I was yeah. just curious. Well, speaking of doubling down, people of Earth. Had its finale game night, and I am really looking forward to Evil Dawn next season. Yes. How yeah, fun is I that going to be? It's going to be very fun. Just, uh, I liked the sort of groundwork they laid of Dawn also has mad martial arts skills. And they're just like, now he's, now Eric's taken him over, and it's just like, and is giving him square eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Uh, irises i should say not eyeballs the eyeballs are still around the irises are what are square now yeah and the 
the potential for what season the season three for this show is going to look like is i think really exciting um i definitely do think that they're probably going to refocus on uh Pedrad's character and i mean they gave her a twin sister for pete's sake and she was born in space um i i, I really <laughs> i really feel like the show is going to refocus on her and i'm 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 excited about that i'm because as much as i sort of enjoyed this finale i still just keep going back to the fact that the season just kept feeling like it was lurching towards this finale as opposed to like building towards this finale in a way that felt really fun and organic and just felt very much it didn't feel like season one and i'm eager for the sort of the show to after this and after everyone escapes from eric and everyone's able to sort of I'm eager for this idea of a rebellion or how the world grapples with the fact that maybe aliens are real or how that plays out. I'm frankly much more interested in the fallout from this finale than I am necessarily in what this finale did, even as I sort of enjoyed a lot of the character moments. I was really invested in like that moment of Jerry just hitting activate over and over again and Yvonne looking increasingly concerned. And I liked that moment. But for me, this season, as strong as it can be on like sort of an episodic basis, lacked those sort of larger moments that I really responded to, like Activate, 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 or some of the stuff that happened in season one. So I'm eager for a third season to see the show sort of recalibrate, as it were, in a way that doesn't feel quite so manufactured. Um, but how did you feel about the finale? Um, and what are you looking forward to in season three? Um, well, I really enjoyed Kirk getting hit by a car again. <laughs> Poor Kirk. Oh, man. Um, but uh, just trying to... Oh, you know what? I couldn't place it. Uh, but I'm looking at IMDb here. Eric, you know the voice of Eric is? Yes, I found that out like two weeks ago and did not believe it. I did not. It's, it's Peter Serafinowicz, <laughs> listeners, and yeah. I feel like an idiot for not having like ca- like caught on to that. But no wonder it's been such a terrific performance. He's amazing. Um, but I, so I really enjoy the concept of Jeff and maybe Kurt, maybe not being stranded on Earth. Um, yeah, uh, I, I like the you know it's, it's interesting that the show is so fully engaged with. Um, Jonathan as human, like they really don't want to pay for the makeup, which is why they keep keep him in his human face and just maybe do the eyes. But yeah. um, I, I like you know the idea of how how is he? Like, we know how we know how Jonathan can hide. Yeah. How does Jeff hide uh, mm-hmm. on Earth? That's, that's that's not gonna work. Um. So I think that will be interesting. Uh. Like you, I was. I thought that the the Jerry and Yvonne stuff was really effective. I also loved Jerry's never down you again, babe. Like they're getting yeah. the baseball bats and the you know everything, and I love the grenade that was hidden in the lamp. Um, <laughs> it was it was super fun. I think some of the elements of the season weren't as successful. The transition away from Ozzy as the center was not yeah. successful. Um, it was not particularly um, agile the way that they did that. However, I do think that Nisi Pedrada has been terrific, and uh, I liked her. Sister was gonna was, was like destiny or something like charity or something like that was gonna be her name and 
um that's that's they did a good job mirroring her with the you know it's, it's not nothing is orphan black levels except orphan black but it was closer to that end of the spectrum which is what you want yeah. um and yeah there's just so much potential for you know what they can do and having a real significant tangible villain will take the show in very interesting directions for next yeah. season um and and using the bee because when we see the bee again you're like oh I, he's gonna get foiled by the bee it's gonna be you know some sort of thing but instead using that as a very potent dramatic yes. uh you know like just period at the end of the season i think was very effective Right. No, I kept waiting for the bees part to be exactly what you described as this thing that undoes everything. But no, it's a emphasis. It's an exclamation point of like, this is how serious we are right now. And that worked really well for me. And I liked the long play of that and that usurpation of expectations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's been a fun season. Like you said, not as successful overall, I think we'd agree, as season one. But, yeah. but, but certainly an entertaining, fun summer show. Um, yep. more exciting, I think for both of us Ooh. is where the good place went this week with dance dance resolution. So we were talking about last week. Okay. Do you think they're done resetting? And we're like, I think they're probably, you know, you're like, I'm not going to say anything because I know. Uh, and, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I think I can be very wrong. Um, and I enjoyed being so wrong. I was expecting them to get to the place at the end of this episode, like three episodes from now. Uh, sure. For, or even at the end of the season. And a different show, a less interesting and a less uh, creatively fueled show, would do that. Uh, so I really appreciate, you know, the, the the writer has a lot of fun with this episode and all these different th- expectations or hopes that you could have for the various resets and then just being like, okay, but we've done that now. Let's move on. Because it, they know it will be satisfying to, to just keep resetting the characters. So they instead make it into a punchline. Uh, they go a little too all in on Eleanor and Chidi for, for you know OTP for my taste. You hush your you hush your pretty mouth, Kate. How, are you wait? Are you Eleanor and Chidi OTP? No, I thought you were Eleanor and Tahani. I am always Eleanor and Tahani, but since we didn't get to see that soulmate version of the show, <laughs> um, I have to put my chips where they where the show's willing to go. <laughs> can't we just have be one happy poly family right we we can be and i suspect we will be uh since um <laughs> we know jason and janet right right jason jason janet's solid but also like let's remember the let's just acknowledge the fact that there's just a solid like three seconds of eleanor looking at dahani's chest <laughs> in this episode where it's just like oh yeah, I mean, it's it's not subtle at all, but it's just a continuation of that joke that Tahani, sorry, Eleanor is legit into Tahani, mm-hmm. regardless. And no, so I, I like the idea of this sort of poly relationship, but I also look forward to the potential stomach stomach ache that such a conversion would cause. <laughs> yeah, so indeed. yeah, no, I, I fully agree. Like I was... I was talking with a number of people who watched the premiere and went, yeah, I don't know how they can keep this up. And I just went, hey, guess what? They don't. They do a whole montage of stuff, including a scary obsolete that wants to take people to the bad place, which I thought was really funny. Mm -hmm. And then they just go, no, Michael's going to team up with everyone so he can keep his job and not be retired onto the face of a thousand sons. And it's all really good, and it's all really smart and funny, and it pushes the show forward really quickly. 
but it also makes Vicky into sort of an antagonist for everyone, which I'm very excited about because Vicky is lovely and amazing. <laughs> and But also the fact that if Michael would just listen to Vicky, his project would probably succeed. But he's not willing to give up his ego, and he's created this own little hell for himself as well. And I just really love the fact that they've Michael has inadvertently created a hell for everyone with this project that doesn't involve impaling, twisting, or burning. Or butthole spiders. Or or bees with teeth. <laughs> yeah. I like that they really strongly lampshaded that. Like this this uh maybe the twist is that really it's Michael who's in his bad place yeah. and like because uh, that's like yes that would make sense but it would just be cleverness for cleverness's sake so i like that they included that on the list of of schemes convince yeah. michael that really he's in the bed you know um yeah, yeah there, there was enough variety in it i liked the the moment when jason figures it out instead <laughs> and that like that is a new low for michael is delightful i also really love that they firmly established no mindy and the the middle place is an actual thing that yes. wasn't part of the ruse the yeah. train is an actual thing like i appreciated some of that specificity and and because uh, you know there's always that question of how much that we watched last year yes. was legit and how much of it isn't um and was just part of the original construction for a take you know version one try one attempt one um so yeah we'll we'll see what they do next but certainly they are so far keeping up maintaining their pace from season one which is impressive yeah it's super impressive and also kate did you bring the cocaine i told i asked you to bring <laughs> you never bring the cocaine um did you bring some eyelashes anything <laughs> some aspirin <laughs> um no 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 it's just it's really delightful how the show now that it's you now that it's like pulled the rug out from under us and its finale is just like all right we need to do this in a way that feels organic mm-hmm. that helps our story and but keeps keeps everyone sort of keeps the audience but also our characters on their toes and it's really exciting and while we were sort of talking about it i realized what its sort of inverted impulse was of like wanting to keep people on their toes but failing miserably at that kate the good place is doing what the good wife could not Mm, so far so far, right. And hopefully, knock on wood, they can keep doing that. But they also only have like 13 half hour episodes that they have to fill. And the Kings were always very disgruntled about having to fill 22. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I like. I was going to say, I'm very much reminded of The Vampire Diaries. And right. It's I also think, a very good comparison, I think. Yeah. A Good Wife is another excellent example of this. If you start like in season two, where they spent like a solid three, four years, seasons, consistently doing this like blowing up their show and coming up with a better version of it or more interesting more challenging new version of it but eventually they ran out of ideas um and they had other problems that they couldn't handle behind the scenes that contributed to that uh on vampire diaries eventually they ran out of steam at least in my opinion um and that energy from the beginning part of the show and like the no we just made (laughs) one of my favorite twists uh, and genre TV that I've seen is what is what they do on the Vampire Diaries around like the this one prophecy and there's like a moonstone thing about uh, I werewolves. vaguely remember a moonstone yeah yeah 
that's one of my like the way that they the the way that they handled that kind of plot churn in the early part of you know early seasons of Vampire Diaries uh, to constantly fuel the narrative and come back to the characters using narrative and using the the continually morphing and changing plot to enhance that you know if they continued to do that here that'd be great but again most shows run out of steam. I agree the shorter episode order and shorter episode length <laughs> helps that. Um, but of course, they also have to be really funny while they're doing yeah. that. And yes, both Vampire Diaries and uh, Good Wife at their best are very funny shows. But it's different when you have to you know, deal with sitcom pacing or comedy pacing. So we'll see how long they can hold it up. But certainly, I would be surprised if it didn't sustain... If, if good good place didn't wasn't able to sustain this at least to the end of this season yeah and i i'm super curious like i think that becomes a large question for the show is like how do you sustain it and the show so far is like being really good about answering that question of like we know we can't sustain this like literally within the show itself we cannot sustain this because of what we've constructed so far and it's one of the things where i go like sean and vicky's notes are feel like aggressively like network executive notes but the show doesn't lean into that meta-ness of it and all but i couldn't help but also just imagine michael skurr sitting at his desk complaining about getting fat and his thighs doing the thing that ted danson does really effectively and how that this is a tension that the show itself is aware of and is lightly factoring in, not to like community levels factoring in, but factoring into its into its second season. That I feel confident about their ability to do something really good here, and I'm really eager to see more of what they're going to do in yeah. episode four already because yeah. we did two last week. Yeah, no, it's shaping up to be a contender for for best comedies of the year at least it's yeah. we're only three episodes in that's early to say that but yeah. you know like four episodes into the handmaid's tale i was besotted so who knows yeah. what will happen but uh, at least for now they're, they're i off don't to think a, we're going to get really bad flashback episodes here so yeah i don't think so either but who yeah. knows fingers crossed knows? Yeah. um uh, we're also very excited about the return of ducktales and they had two episodes this week as well day trip of doom and the great dime chase um so uh, these were fun uh and they yes. continued the the energy and the creativity and the pacing the tight pacing of the premiere i will say that it was strange to only have two of the the, the triplets yes. in great dime chase i'm hoping that will not be like a trend like i can see yeah. why because yeah. they, there's only there's only so many subplots but you know that was a little strange. Um, but I do continue to enjoy the show. And I was watching this and it just it was like, David Tennant is such a treasure. And I love how he started in people's, in, at least in America, in people's consciousnesses as the doctor. And then was like, let's collect more fandoms. Shakespeare fangirls and boys? Yes. Let's yeah. get them in. Let's Comic books? Yes. Jessica Jones. And uh, now... DuckTales, let's get the children and the, the kids who grew up in the 90s. He's doing such a terrific job and there's so much fun and energy in, in, in his performance um, that I look, you know, like, as if he wasn't already set at conventions forever. Um, Tenet easily could just dine out on his Scrooge here at conventions 
for the next 20 years if, if he wanted to, assuming the show continues for a while and it, it picks up enough of an audience. But yeah, these were super fun. I, I, I'm really enjoying having this show back too. I, I, I really appreciate what Tenet's doing, but I, I just want to highlight, Kate, mm-hmm. how really wonderful tickled I was when Ma Beagle showed up. Mm-hmm. And she was voiced by Margaret Martindale. Yeah, no, that was awesome. <laughs> and I just went, oh, Maz Bennett's back as a crime lord, and it's so good on a kid's show. <laughs> Character actress Margot Martindale. We love you. Yeah, that was right. But the, I, with the I incompetent like, children. Right. I, but I was just deeply, deeply amused by that, that they just went, you know what? Margot Martindale is going to be our, our mob eagle. Mm-hmm. And... All of the 30-somethings that watch Justified are going to be deeply amused by this casting choice. And they were right. <laughs> yep. But no, it was it was just really funny. But also, just like as a DuckTales fan, I really enjoyed like the sort of weird, dark stuff that Jim Rash and the writing brought to Gyro Gearloose of mm-hmm. this disgruntled inventor slash maybe a guy who wants to take over the world so people will finally recognize how brilliant he is. And I just went... I'm here for this. I'm here for Jim Rash doing this. I'm here for this version of Gyro Gearloose because Gyro was just the absent-minded professor. And now he's just kind of angry a little bit in like an acceptable form of anger for a Disney XD show. But it's just really fun. And it's really, it's really enjoyable, but also just like the undercurrents of, well, not anywhere near like steven universe levels of like acceptance but i i really liked how everything played out with webby when they went to funzo's um yeah the, the pirate thing and just how a awkward she was but b how she saved the day and how her mad skills of basically being a spy cooped up in a mansion for however old webigail is is just like <laughs> It's really, it's really delightful that they gave Webby that sort of a um, presentation, that sort of a demonstration exhibit um, spotlight. That was the word I was looking for. That sort of a spotlight, complete with like Splinter Cell esque night goggles. <laughs> and so I, I'm just really deeply charmed by the show on any number of levels, and even something as sort of tired as. The very obvious gag of, oh no, this is just a decoy da- dime, why would I do that? Of That I don't care because everything leading up to that gag was really funny and amusing and f- while it maybe didn't feel fresh, it was still funny and enjoyable. And that's really sort of all I expect from this show is that when I come back from like a state fair and I'm just like, I'm too tired to do anything. I'm going to watch two episodes of DuckTales and I'm immediately entertained and sort of re-energized. And so I'm very much here for this 2017 reboot of DuckTales. Yep. No, I absolutely agree. And well, I would assume they will continue with similar levels of casting uh, or, or creativity and fun with casting. And uh... Well, I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda's playing the duck who gets the suit of... Cradshell, and I'm very excited. Fenton. He's playing Fenton, and I'm very excited of when that actually pays off for us. <laughs> uh, tangent, have you heard his uh, Magic School Bus reboot theme song? Yes! It's very and exciting. And I, I cannot believe how much of that show I'm going to watch when it launches. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what wins your week in comedy? Oh, 
Oh, Kate, stop asking me to pick between my children. Yep, um, yep, because this, well, this is Good Place versus Speechless, right? That's what this is. It's it's Good Place versus Speechless versus DuckTales for me, because I really enjoyed both of these episodes. Okay. Um, but I'm going to give it to Good Place, um, and I feel like I'm going to end up doing that for like the next ten weeks. So I apologize in advance for that happening. But yeah, no, it was Dance Dance uh, Resolution, even if just for the story of how we got to Dance Dance Resolution. Um, what about you? What won your week in comedy this week? Uh, I'll split the vote. I'll give it to Speechless. Um, but it was their Speechless and, and Good Place are tied for me as far as I'm concerned. It was a, it was a good week in, in comedy. I kept thinking, oh, this one's definitely going to win. Oh, this one's definitely going to win. Oh, it's gonna be hard to get till this week. So we'll uh, we'll see what uh, which which of these shows is able to keep it up. But 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 like when we talked, you know, when I talked a couple weeks ago about being frustrated with this talk about it, it's the worst fall TV ever. It's like okay, but there's all these terrific returning shows. There's a right. lot of great fall TV. Just because Inhumans looks horrible and is terrible based on every review or even just tweet I've seen from people who've seen it. It doesn't mean that there's not a lot of really terrific TV going on right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's very true. So, yay, good TV. Yay, good TV comedies. Now we'll take a break and uh, talk about some some less good and some very good yeah. t- uh, TV in the rest of our, our, our week in TV. Uh, we'll be right back after this. That was We Belong by Pat Benatar. You better believe I was going to take an opportunity to play Pat Benatar on our on our podcast here, Noel, as soon as uh, I knew it was an option. Uh, this week in reality and drama, we'll talk about uh, Law & Order True Crime, The Menendez Murders. Uh, it had its first episode, uh, its premiere episode one. Uh, then we'll talk a little bit, a bit about uh, Halt and Catch Fire, A Connection is Made, and we'll round things out with the second half of the Vietnam War uh, documentary. Uh, things fall apart the veneer of civilization the history of the world a disrespectful loyalty and the weight of memory um so first up is law and order true crime the menendez murders i was completely disinterested in this and then got a little more interested when i started hearing some good things about some of the performances because it does have a cast that i just they're, they're all terrific it's an amazing cast um and then uh, and and we also it's well established how much i love law and order it, it is right. it is known how much we both love law and order yeah indeed um and then the menendez murders starts with a, a exploitative and overly graphic for what is required uh brutal murder of our two central characters is completely unnecessary and it's there to titillate and it's there to tease and it's 
totally not okay. And it really, it angered me. It viscerally angered me because this is not law and order. This is law and order true crime. These are real people who lived, who died horribly, and you are exploiting that in your opening minutes. This is directed by Leslie Lincoln-Gladder, and she should know better than this. She's been around directing things for a long time, and I've enjoyed her work a lot. Um, so I was really disappointed when I when I saw that that who that was who directed this. Um, yeah, I will not be watching more of this. Uh, did you have as strong of a response as I did to this, Noel? I had a very strong response. Yeah, no, I had a very strong response as well from... I think the opening minutes really set the tone for how aggressively tone-deaf, but also weirdly boring that this is. And mm-hmm. from how they frame the mor- murder of the Menendezes to, in light of like how the uh, People versus O.J. Simpson functioned, how really just sort of neutral this is. How disinterested it is in the 1980s landscape or early 1990s landscape i forget which this is that it just it feels like it's trying to be law and order but also something else entirely but you can't reconcile either of those things in a way that is interesting like the flashbacks alone are just aggressively bad and weird within this particular format but also just i don't know why i'm supposed to care about like these detectives or how i'm supposed to care about this case apart from the fact ripped from the headlines but this is what law and order does is ripped from the headlines but they always do it in a way that feels interesting and this there's nothing in this that feels interesting to the point where i'm just like its greatest achievement kate is the fact that they somehow made josh charles feel slightly less attractive (laughs) by that really terrible hairstyle he has but this is just it's not interesting it's it's not it's not dramatically propulsive in a way that I expect from Renee Belcher handling this kind of material and just the sheer exploitiveness of it just to your point just feels really weird and icky in a way that you can't even ascribe to some of the more exploitive episodes of SVU and it just it feels very much like the sort of rush job that very clearly probably was they they're trying to recapture the the sensation the hit that was uh people versus oj simpson right yeah no very aggressively so but absolutely in people versus oj simpson the writers were intensely interested in every single one of those characters as people and their right. humanity and their reality and why they were doing what they were doing and how their experience and their their background and their life shaped their their very public choices. There's none of that here. There's absolutely none of that. We don't know who like Edie Falco is there and she's doing a good job in her performance, but there's nothing to her character. She shows up for like a couple seconds in this or a couple minutes I should say in this premiere mostly so she can be brilliant and right. Right. When she has no I, I immediately when when in the premiere she says, "Oh, the the kids did it." Uh, I immediately Googled, how accurate is this? Is anybody like, is there any, anything to back up that statement? Like, is that something that the, the actual figure had said that she immediately knew that the, that these, before she was involved in the case, she knew that the, 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 the kids had been, were, were guilty. Um, because that just feel, felt so incredibly convenient. It's just there to get us to think she's whip smart and she knows what's up and, 
it just is not particularly interesting or creative writing. So yeah, this when you have talent at this level, you know, this deep of a bench, um, I expect it to be much more interesting because it needed to attract those people. Why did all these people come to do the show? I guess because they wanted their Emmys and they're like, well, People vs. O.J. Simpson did so well and it cleaned up. Let's do the next one. But this was not clearly not going to be the vehicle that was going to make it happen. No, it's definitely not. And uh, I think like to your point about like storytelling and the degree of interest in characters is also just the fact that the the Menendez brothers feel like really lousy criminal and law and order criminal intent villains like b or c level right they're like super they're super b or c level criminal intent villains as opposed to someone that people that were supposed to either sympathize with or be compelled by and given how especially for the two of us and how intimately familiar we are with law and order as a franchise this feels just like really it feels like a really bad cover cover band version of Law and Order, done by people who know how to do Law and Order, and that's really bizarre to watch and watch that play out and to see how they sort of struggle with characterization, um, but also like case structure across multiple episodes and the 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 fact that they that everyone involved just kind of goes yeah, we don't know how to do this, really, is basically the sense I get from this. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a ringing endorsement over here from the Televerse for yeah. Law & True Crime. Uh, let's cleanse the palate with Halt and Catch Fire. A connection is made. Obviously, we love Halt and Catch Fire. I've Unfortunately, I was behind on my viewing. I've only seen about half the episode. But fortunately, I did see up through the scene that I'm sure, Nicole, that is why you reached out to me to see what I thought about the episode. And yes, I did love the stuff with Haley and at, at the, the fast food place with Haley and Joe and the cute waitress and how wonderful, especially in By Visibility Week, to see, you know, just the coincidence of the show airing that this past week, to see the yeah. show remember that Joe is is bi, he's openly bi, like his friends, his, he, you know, his social circle, his colleagues know that he's bi. And so to have him be there to observe that uh, interaction with Haley and this girl that she clearly has a crush on, um, and just a little, that little, for him to recognize that and support her and just say nothing until she you know until she asked him to say more um it was absolutely beautiful so uh, i loved what i saw of this episode what did you think of the entirety of it absolutely beautiful is a terrific way to describe a connection is made i think this is probably one of the show's best episodes um in part of how it plays off this idea of connections i mean there's the Haley and vanessa stuff um that is so wonderfully paid off at the end of the episode that I can't wait for you to finish it. Yay! <laughs> um, and how that, how that, how that is, how that is, how that, how that gets acknowledged um, through the characters, I think, is really good as well. That I almost kind of want you to go, no, 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 go back and rewatch it from the beginning, and then just watch it all the way through, so that mm -hmm. it clicks into place what's happening here. Yeah. Even though you have a really good memory, and you'll be fine. Um, 
but also just like the fact that like there's a Boz and Joe scene in this that's really good that I legitimately I think I had said that I did not expect that we would have a Joe and Boz scene because of like where season one ended and it's just like no we're going to give you this scene and we're going to acknowledge what happened in season one we're going to acknowledge where these men are now and what this means to both of them and just how the casualness of their relationship is very, their relationship is just very different now. And how that plays off. and But also just how Gordon and Donna's relationship is deeply different now. And how it's informed by everything that even happened off screen before this show started. And how really lovely... And significant that is for both of them as characters, but also how much importance that has for the show and how they want to dig into that for how these characters interact with one another is every time I watch an episode basically from this season so far, I immediately think to myself that I cannot believe that this is the show that I watched in season one. Because it doesn't feel like it at all in any way, shape, or form. Enough so that I sort of wonder if I misjudged season one. I don't think I did. <laughs> I don't think you did either. <laughs> no, I don't think I did either. But everything that I've watched this season goes, right, we know season one didn't work and we were chasing something that didn't exist. Or we were chasing something that existed but that we couldn't really replicate. And now we just bake that into our premise of, like, all our characters were chasing something that they couldn't make and could create. And now we're dealing with that in a sort of meta-narrative sort of way of we're inventing Google and we're inventing social media and all this stuff. But then their realization that character is what's important and just going, right. And it is. Like, it's just really astounding how... The show is mining even season one stuff in this episode in particular for really strong dramatic moments that I just, I kind of can't get over it in this show, Kate. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited by that. Yeah. Well, because I, I, you know, as I talked about previously on the podcast, I watched the beginning of season one, went, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. Right. And then then jumped in with season two. I watched just a couple episodes of season one and did not was not gonna be more. And then I heard heard that the end of season one had gotten a lot better and I was like, Well, I'm still yeah. not watching the Joe show. But uh I I'm not interested in another anti hero who is he's troubled, but he's a genius, so it doesn't does it really matter if he's an asshole? Um and so then I jumped into season two and it was wonderful because they pivoted and made the show about Cameron and Donna. I would not, and, and the show got just was really terrific. Season two got even better in season three. I would not have thought that they could re add basically the guys as yes. much as they did, right? And still have had the show be good. That's why yes. I was a little worried about it when it was became clear that it was going to be a very balanced final season as compared to being really about Cameron and Donna, which is yes. what was the case for much of season two and most of season three. Um, so I was a little leery about that still. So it's just so gratifying to see them 
pull it off so incredibly well so yes. far, at least, you know, more than halfway through this final season. And uh, yeah, it's probably still not enough to get me to go back and re like fill in the gaps of season one, because I still am not interested in that version of the show. But I love that they, the writers and the producers uh, were so able to so deftly look at what they had, see the gems and figure out how to make best use of them. And that it's it, it's just a, such a great example of how often in, in a show, it's so hard to make any show, let alone to make a show that's interesting, let alone to make a show that's interesting and good. Um, so to see, you know, to figure out what worked, you know, pivot the show to be about that, and then not say, no, it's not that Joe is just a bad character or that Lee Pace is poorly cast in that role or these other things. No, it's just that we needed to re assess or just tweak certain aspects to the tone and to these approaches and these characters and then it can still be really interesting there's good stuff here we just have to adjust like these different elements of the tone and and the balance of the show so yeah like i just i'm just saying i agree with you Noel, in a very roundabout way but i but no. i agree with you Noel. <laughs> No, no, I, but I mean, you're totally right, because, like, Joe and Boz have this conversation about Joe being an asshole mm -hmm. when they met. And the thing that, like, drives us home is the fact that, like, Joe isn't an asshole anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, he's this guy who recognizes what Haley is experiencing and wants Gordon very much to recognize it as well. And Gordon is not able to recognize it and is a kind of an on-the-nose moment in which Gordon is trying to clean up a milkshake that's been thrown at a glass window and is not able to while saying, I can see my daughter, Joe. Literally, he's able. he says that. <laughs> yeah. And it's very on-the-nose, but like he's not an asshole anymore. He does an egg bake in Cameron's Airstream. I cannot imagine Joe, even in season two, Kate, mm -hmm. doing an egg bake in a mug in an airstream. But <laughs> Joe's not an asshole anymore. And the show has grown and realized that Don Draper as a staid sort of character, which is very much what Joe was in season one. Unless you're doing the show that Matthew Weiner was doing with Mad Men. You can't have that work. And you and also, like, Lee Pace isn't really fit for that, to your point, fit for that kind of a role. Well, and also on Mad Men, you started to get repetitive until they had Don change, which they did do. It just took five seasons to get there, six seasons to get there. Right. And uh, I quit after season four because of that. Because of that, yeah. Well, and, and with, you know, to your point about Joe, he still has the potential to right. be an asshole. It's still there. You can still see those same traits. And when, when Cam tells him about helping out with the code, you can see that destructive, yes. self-destructive tendency like start to fire up. But he has better coping mechanisms yes. now. He, his, yeah. he's, he has a healthier relationship with himself and those around him. So he can process that stuff. But it still feels like the same character. It feels like a, yes. the same character, but just he's been through more of life. And he is is perceptive, so he has noticed things about himself that he likes and that he doesn't. And some of that stuff he's able to control and, and improve, and some of that stuff he's still working on. But it feels like, especially the way the show keeps jumping through time, it really does feel like there's been an organic progression with that character um, through his life, even if we haven't seen all of his life. Right, and I think that kind of, like, 
is reinforced, especially within this episode. So I'm really eager for you to finish it mm-hmm. because like Donna gets pulled over for driving while drunk and she calls Gordon to bail him out, bail her out. And they have this, like this heart and heart moment in Gordon's car. And Gordon just tells her that you're the same person you always were. And I love that person. And it's a very tender moment, but it's also like a weird sort of reinforcement of what the show has become is that these are people who keep aggressively changing in the same way that technology keeps aggressively changing, but it's still sort of the same goals of what technology was as envisioned by these characters was supposed to do which is connect and do all this sort of this sort of idealistic stuff that I think is very core to all four of these characters relationship technology was supposed to be about and the fact that the show is crystallizing all of that is just and even particularly just really aggressively within this hour is really really lovely which is why I said it was probably one of the best hours the show has done Oh, I can't wait to to finish it up then and maybe start it again. Um, yeah, it's very exciting. It's very exciting. Um, any final thoughts on Halt and Catch Fire, or shall we move on to the Vietnam War? No, let's let's move on to the Vietnam War and the fact that all the all the pre funding announcements shifted a little bit this week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to make the sure. <laughs> yeah, to make uh, sure that. People weren't supporting the Vietnam War, but they were providing patron support. Yeah, <laughs> support was being provided by, yeah. Um, so these, we have things fall apart. The veneer of civilization, the history of the world, a disrespectful loyalty, and the weight of memory. Um, obviously, we talked about last week being, uh, you know, like really impressed with the first half of this. Um, obviously, we, we both kept up with it, so that says a lot, because again, it's all, it's 10 episodes each, like the shortest of which is an hour and a half. So, like, it's a lot of TV to watch. Um, how did you feel the second half of these these episodes went, or the, the documentary went, and did, was it able to maintain its balance and its perspective as we got on later in, you know, the, I guess this documentary's take on the Vietnam War? Answering the second part first... Yes, it really, particularly in the weight of memory, especially, um, maintains a degree of balance that I was, I was really eager to see the show continue because we spend a great deal of time on Vietnam during and immediately following the American withdrawal slash evacuation of Vietnam, but also just like also going forward to its issues with, um, the USSR, um, Russia, and also uh, Communist China, and the idea of a Vietnam's Vietnam happening. We didn't dive like deep into that, but we acknowledged like that this was something that happened immediately after the Americans' withdrawal. But this was very much a documentary about America and Vietnam, and mm-hmm. and so expanding beyond that, expanding beyond that was not what the show wanted to do. And I acknowledge that and I accept that. And I think that was probably wise because otherwise then you're doing a Vietnam war strictly from a Vietnamese perspective, which I think would be really interesting and compelling, but it's not what this project is. Um, As for my degree of interest, 
I kind of stopped after the history of the world being very deeply engaged by this. Um, mainly because, as I sort of talked about last week, is like I hit my limit of military history. I hit my limit of this this type of history. I hit my limit. Okay. As much as I really enjoyed, however the domestic emphasis on a disrespectful loyalty which i think is one of the sh- one of the series stronger hours of, insofar as this is what i'm actively interested in um that overall like i was starting to fade really hard and there was a part of me that just went i kind of need a week off from this show <laughs> To, and then I will finish it, but then I was just like, but we're going to discuss it on the podcast, and I need to watch both of these episodes, so I'm going to watch them. But it still ended up being a really good and sweeping and thoughtful documentary, I thought. And I feel like we can just sort of talk about like the weight of memory by itself as its own individual unit, especially particularly the end in regards to the Vietnam War wall, um, as that moment is like deeply impactful. But how did you feel about this second half of the documentary? Were, did you remain engaged? Um, was there anything in particular that stood out to you as we finished it up? Yeah, I absolutely did. I, um, because of life this week, uh, I ended up having to watch, um, episodes nine and ten and most of eight today as we record so it was it was a lot it was a lot that is a lot yeah (laughs) but i was incredibly compelled um i if anything i got even more compelled as the series went along okay which i didn't anticipate because i found the first half so compelling um and there was certainly a lot more i didn't know in the first half or at least had never heard of there it's not like i knew everything to talk about but just it was more familiar in the periphery of my understanding um but for example i you know i when john Kerry ran for the presidency i there's stuff about swift boats and i didn't really but like watching this video of him speaking i had never seen that Okay. Um, okay. So that was really interesting, and put obviously he's Secretary of State. Here he was Secretary of State. <laughs> if only he were Secretary of State now. Um, he was Secretary of State under Obama, um, so that added different a different context to my understanding of him currently. Obviously, I'm very familiar with figures like John McCain and Jane Fonda and their involvement in in Vietnam. So those that was less surprising, but um, but no, the way that the, that this continued to track the involvement north and south vietnam and america and and the the perspective the shifting perspective of the the enlisted americans in vietnam as you get into the draft and how that affects their commitment level and how that affects their response um was really interesting the i i liked that they had they interviewed people who were there at the very beginning of Amer- of deployment and, and and interviewed the last guy off of the roof in Saigon as well. Um and that like the I thought that was a really interesting contrast to or compare and contrast to draw between their perspectives on everything. Um I loved the amount of time they spent on the Vietnam War Memorial. I would say if anything, it felt a little overbalanced towards the American audience as yes. I was watching it. I was like, this, it feels like we're spending too much time on America here. I'm loving every second of it. I find it 
incredibly compelling and um and i want to i want even more but it doesn't necessarily feel like that's balanced um but having you know having seen the vietnam memorial several times it's just so striking and so powerful incredibly incredibly powerful um there's it also there's a any any when you see some of those memorials that have the names like that i think that's the the memorials that i've seen that have been the most impactful to me have been in that style there was a church i went to in the czech republic that was the interior of what had been a church or not a church a um it had been a Jew, a jewish center at one at one point and just every inch of the walls was names of people of, of people in that town who'd been uh killed in the the by the nazis when they invaded the czech republic and um again it was just all, just these walls covered with names it's so incredibly powerful so to, to hear in this and it's, it's similarly impactful to, to for me to to see the the wall to to listen to the different perspectives of people who were offended by it because it would never have occurred to me how could anyone be offended by that but that's their experience. That's their perspective. And they're telling you honestly how they feel. It was very emotional. Um, and what I kept being, what I kept being surprised by, which I shouldn't have, but what I kept being surprised by and being presented with is the age of the veterans because they are so much younger than they are in my head from watching period pieces that have Vietnam veterans and then project, oh, that's set in the 70s, so project forward 30 years and that kind of a thing. Because um, obviously my parents are, you know, late 50s, early 60, uh, or turning 60 soon. Um, so they're not that far from my parents. Um, but I never think of that. I always think, for whatever reason, I always think of Vietnam veterans as being older. And so when, then of course that made me think back to the times that I've been to the memorial and seeing other people there and it like if unless they were much older i would have never thought that oh maybe they're a veteran of this particular war so i don't know it was really the the connection like the closeness that you feel to these talking heads throughout i thought was really uh quite an achievement by the directors and something that i appreciated that they made me appreciate them continuing these threads some of these interviews like um the the woman whose brother was killed, Porker, um, yeah, Porker, yeah. Um, in one of the earlier episodes, um, was about her. She talked about the her memories of being told that he had been killed, um, and but then when we get to the memorial in this last episode, I was so grateful that they had maintained those threads so that it was, you get these different perspectives on everything that followed. So it's not like the story ended for her after her brother was killed which is such an obvious thing but i feel like a lot of documentaries would have cut that for time yeah and they didn't feel the need to do that here i also loved at the end what when they listed you know like these different people that you'd been seeing all through the documentary and said what they're doing now and how they continue to be shaped by vietnam the vietnam war i should say um yeah i just thought it was really staggering i was like doing other work while i was watching some of this obviously because as much as we would love to spend the entire day watching television, not having to do any work, that's not our realities. Um, but I kept just like getting sucked into, especially these last few episodes, um, and just and like and just 
just really emotional and really compelled by it. And then like I turn around and be like, oh yeah, I was filing this. Okay. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, it was, a, again, quite an achievement. I've seen several of the Ken Burn documentaries, but I don't, maybe it's just because this is the most recent one, but, uh, the achievement, uh, here from Novik and from, from Ken Burns is, is really impressive. Yeah. And I think you were just entirely correct. I mean, for me, some of like the continuing threads didn't totally work. Like uh, the woman uh, Mogi's sister um, never really landed in a way that I think the documentary wanted it to land. Um, but it was supplemented by like John Musgrave, um, whose story is told very consistently throughout the the, the entire ten parts. And that, I think, lands really hard. So when he's talking about, like, coming up on the memorial and his response, but also, like, his response to being back and his attempted suicide, but then going, like, my dog saved me. (laughs) And, but also just, like, his realization that he could not speak out anymore about how he felt about the war and how that fed into, like, Carrie's testimony uh, to Congress, which is something I was had seen and was aware of thanks to his presidential run, since in no small part the George W. Bush administration at the time, plus Pax and Coral Rove, had made a significant fodder of uh, Kerry's Vietnam War and post-war activities um, as an activist, a central part of their um, campaign against Kerry. Um, like significantly so, like aggressively so, that I was very much aware of like the role Carrie played in all of it. So I'd seen all of that before that I was eager for stuff like Musgrave's recollections and, but also other people's recollections of like how the War Memorial, which I knew was deeply controversial, played out. But like the early parts of the Nixon administration pre Watergate in relation to the war and to a limited extent Ford's um, administration were things that were relatively new to me because Nixon and Ford gets get conflated together, understandably so, but then you feed into Watergate and Woodward and Bernstein and all this sort of stuff that Vietnam becomes like a weird sort of footnote in the Nixon administration. So a lot of that was really interesting to me. So having the tapes of Nixon and Kissinger discussing the war was really fascinating, but I just kind of kept drifting back to more of the Vietnam politics of it, which were a little less familiar to me and really more compelling to me. And yeah, it was just, I really appreciated just how wide ranging this was really in its whole. And as much as I was just sort of like, I I need like a week off everyone. I was glad not to have that week off. So I could sort of like work through all of it in like a two week go, but also like you, like, especially for weight of, not especially for weight of memory like which is the last episode which is the last episode i should say i had to work while i was doing uh weight of memory because otherwise there would not have been any time for me to watch it in time for us to discuss it yeah and i i I think that sort of cheapened some of it but it was also like large stretches where i just kind of stopped working and paying attention to it because i was really fascinated by what the people who fought or people who were associated with the war 
were saying about it in its final days, but also like what the scars, um, the immediate scars are not what the lingering scars have been because the documentary, because we talked about this, about whether the show was going to address the far reaching implications of what this war did and the documentary chose not to do that. And I was initially really frustrated by that, like an hour into the last episode. I was just like, you guys are going to have time to talk about this. And then it was just like, it was expressed by a number of the people talking. Particularly like, again, like going to John Musgrave and going on his point about like, how could anyone see this referring to the wall and going, why would you do this again? Yeah. And then the show leaving uncommented, the show, the documentary leaving uncommented that, no, we just kind of went, yeah, we didn't really learn any of those lessons. Yeah. And we're, to a very deep extent, still still ingrained in these aspects or launched wars in these aspects with these same sort of connotations and same sort of motivations. And... They do that when they do that montage of Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, Mm -hmm. but they don't make it explicit. And I think there's a certain power to that, but I also sort of just wanted, guys, you just needed like 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Another 15 minutes on top of your two hours. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. To make that really explicit. But I still think it was good and compelling interesting stuff even if i personally as a viewer needed a break yeah what what it was also really interesting to me was the perspective this gave me on because you mentioned watergate on watergate because mm-hmm. you know, you, i had heard about the pentagon papers and like in theory i knew what it meant what yeah. it was but it's very different to like read a description of the pentagon papers and then to spend 18 hours watching the documentary about Vietnam and think about these different, you know, enlisted men and, and women serving in Vietnam and then everything that they went through and then to find out to that the, they'd been lied to by their commanding officers and their government about how, how oh no, we almost, we're almost out of Vietnam, it's going to be fine, we got this taken care of, and then the president is talking about how this is never going to end. Like, the the... the, the the impact of that of, of what that must have been to to be a a family a gold star family to be a, a someone who was a prisoner of war or or uh, somebody who was shot or wounded or just or survived and managed to not have uh you know to not get captured or not be physically injured but still have all of that mental trauma and then and then to have on top of all of that <laughs> and you're, you're you're those people that you trusted with your life and your morality and uh if you're a religious person your soul were lying to you that whole time to go from that right into watergate i mean it just it gives it gives it so much more power um that, that understand i feel like i have a much better understanding than i did before uh of of some of what that felt like um which I don't think you can unless you lived through it, but right. But still, I like it. I was like, oh, okay. I thought I got it before. I think I get it a lot better now. Um, so yeah, listening 
like, like I was grateful for that part of it as well. And for the focus we got on stuff like, like Kent state and, and the unrest at college campuses as well, which of course, again, leads to it being very American, like centered for parts of these last few episodes. Um, and for me, that was very helpful. Um, I don't know how a Vietnamese audience feels about that part of the documentary. They probably don't care, I would guess, but who knows? Um, but in general, like I, when we get to the end and in they're interviewing these veterans who have gone back to Vietnam and, you know, worked with and broken bread with people that were, they were fighting against at these battles. It's just it, like blows your mind. Because, like, the, the city of, like, oh, we need to put war behind us and move forward. Like, lots of movies and documentaries and things say that. But to see physical photographic evidence of Vietnam, Vietnam veterans doing exactly that was incredibly powerful. Well, yeah, and I think that was, like, really important for the show, for the, show, for the documentary to demonstrate, is that this was a... And this is like a running through, especially in the second half, but this was a really fucked up conflict and a really fucked up military engagement and an ideological engagement that ultimately did not make much sense. And the second half really reinforces that. But that its ramifications, A, are still being felt from... um, a number of the talking hands mentioned that mm-hmm. but also be like your point about how this recontextualizes watergate in certain ways um but see like this idea of veterans going back and going like we need to deal with this in a way that makes sense for us whether it's normalizing relations as u.s senators or whether it's visiting people that we shot at or a part of the army that we shot at or establishing schools or helping to like fund things and basically going back and thinking about what this war was that ultimately we didn't know what it achieved apart from having these very deep sort of scars that were still processing in a way that with only like a sense of history that we're aware of. Mm-hmm. And it was just really fascinating hearing a number of these folks talk about the war, but also like one of my best friends was like deployed during um, the tail end of the Bush administration, but through the majority of the Obama administration. And they still grapple with the fact that this United States doesn't make sense to them (laughs) Mm -hmm. in a way that the United States that for these folks didn't really make sense for any of the folks who came back from Vietnam Um, in a less aggressive in a less protest driven way in a less judgmental way of baby killers, etc. That kind of thing that was at the core for a lot of Vietnam protesters and soldier and service folks who came back but in the sense that the United States doesn't make sense to them anymore. And that while that person doesn't feel isolated, in part because, like, whenever they have a question, especially, like, during the election season, they would, like, come to me or come to a couple of their friends with, like, questions of, like, 
how did this happen again? How mm-hmm. did this occur? And it's just like you watching this and then having conversations with this person that's very significant part of my life in my mind and going like, we're just repeating all of this over again in very weird ways um, that it just part of it's hit harder than others, but it displays and demonstrates the significance of recontextualize, not recontextualizing, but contextualizing both history and how that contextualizes us today and how really important that is. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, put it better than that that's that's beautiful and and well put and um yeah i would love to see in a few years this team take on afghanistan take on some of these other you know conflicts i don't know if they'll be interested in this one took 10 years to do yeah but um i certainly but at 10 years like I mean, we need this. We need something like that now. But at ten years, I can't even imagine how badly are, we would need it. Are are we gonna? That's, that's great. Cause that's assuming we're gonna be here in ten years. Yay! I mean, to be fair, you'll probably be here in ten years. God knows if I will. Be. <laughs> Good times. It's a stressful time to be alive. Okay, Noel. Uh, we both recommend Vietnam War to our listeners. Um, yes. That's not a difficult question. The difficult question is, what wins your week in reality and drama, the second half of the Vietnam War, or this week's amazing Hold and Catch Fire? So, I'm going to say both. Um, Watch Vietnam War at a pace that works for you, as opposed to (laughs) 90 minutes to two hours every day for, not every day, but for for 10 days out of 14 um, but also Halt and Catfire basically delivered one of it, probably its best hour ever, I want to say. Mm-hmm. So I'll split the difference. Um, I guess you give it to Vietnam unless you watch like something else that really spoke to you this week. Uh, well, no, Vietnam War, uh, and if I had seen the entirety of Halt and Catfire, I might have a different opinion, but based on the first half of the episode, I'll give it to the Vietnam War. Um, and I think that's an excellent point about watch it at the pace that's appropriate for you. You can watch all of it on uh, pbs.org website. They have the broadcast version, they have an explicit language version, and they have a Vietnamese subtitles version. Oh, very cool. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so, so you know, do seek it out. Just, you know... Be prepared for just just tears just streaming down your face, especially when you get to particularly emotional parts. For me, it was the last few episodes. I've just like turned around; they would just be tears. I'd be like, I don't know when these started, but they're going now. <laughs> so it's very emotional, but it, it, as it as it should be, as any you know attempt to to understand and grapple with the Vietnam War should be. Um, but so we're gonna take a little break. Get some tissues, have some water, and come back and talk about a different kind of battle, and that's Star Trek Discovery, the Vulcan Hello, and Battle at the Binary Stars. So we'll be right back after this. We strive toward this dream of peace, where all species can share common ground. Yet no dream will protect us from you. 
you have been waiting for someone worthy of our attention. I'm trying to save you. I'm trying to save all of you. The work we do is hard. Go! It's not without sacrifice. We are a long way from home. But I know that it is a sacrifice worth making. To do. We need to win. That's the spirit. We're back with the Tullivers. This is Kate Culver, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And this week we are spotlighting the first two episodes of the new Star Trek Discovery series, uh, Vulcan Hello and Battle at the Binary Stars are the two yes. episodes. Now the first one, let's before we even get into it, the first one is the Vulcan Hello. I tried to watch this when it aired on CBS uh, with my dad. Um, which was, I was really looking forward to that because, of course, I grew up watching TNG with my dad and we even powered through some Voyager, certainly a, lot, <laughs> a bunch of DS9 um, yeah. together. So it was going to be really nice. And then the freaking CBS football thing hit and the first 20 minutes of the recording were 60 minutes. And obviously, like, what they, all they need to do, all they need to do is to, like, direct like on demand and TiVo and stuff to, to put up a prompt that says frequently there's a football delay. Would you like to record extra time? This is what happens when you try to record the Emmys or the Oscars. It's like, this has been flagged as something that might run late. Do you want extra time? If they had done that, I'd have been like football, obviously. Yes, I do. And then I could have watched this with my dad, but instead it was a whole thing. Um, now, as I understand it, Noel on the West coast, this is not a concern. It's not a concern, and it's amazing. <laughs> no, like, all the football's done by the time, like, the uh, the CBS national feed starts airing 60 mm-hmm. Minutes. And so, while well, I didn't watch this live, because I, I, I was not that super excited about this, Kate. <laughs> um, I, like, my... Um, my recording started on time. It was it was all good. Okay. And like I noticed this like last uh season when I was watching something I think randomly on CBS um over this or over on a Sunday and I just went, Oh, that's what this is like not to have my shit delayed by football. This is pretty <laughs> cool. I wish I was watching Good Wife while I was on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, so I didn't have that problem. But I'm deeply sorry that you were not a that you had to navigate watching this with your dad. Yeah, I, I wasn't able to do that. Um, uh, also, I, I see like I just I was curious what the ratings were. Um, I saw that it got good ratings. I'm surprised that it did because of that, but um, because of that time time delay. But apparently, it didn't really cost it. I would be very very curious to see how see if this is enough this first episode was enough to get people to subscribe to all access who didn't already have it, who didn't already like subscribe to it for the good fighter. Um, because I would be very surprised if it was enough, frankly, and I'm tipping my hand here a little bit. Um, I really liked a lot of these two episodes. Okay. Uh, I, I thought, I think Sonequa Martin green is terrific. As the main character, um, I think she's her performance is excellent. She's got the charisma and the 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 magnetism that you need for your central figure in this. I think for me, she's got she she is 
she's she's enough of a star right that's what you want in that central figure um i really liked the, the kind of bitchiness of the doug jones character <laughs> sorry for the dynamic they had set up there michelle yo is awesome um the central conflict of of this character of, the, of this nico martin green character of michael being a human who's been raised by vulcans i think is is a fun parallel to draw to somebody like Worf, obviously, who was uh, Klingon raised by humans, um, or obviously Spock in the original Trek. Um, but here's the thing. I know that they wanted to do something different with this show, and they so they wanted to not just have another, another ship with another captain and doing that. I, when they finish the second episode here, I'm curious what you thought, Noel, but for me, I was like, I don't care... I, can't she just be on the ship having adventures, please and please, with Michelle Yeoh as the captain? I mean, I'm a big fan of Jason Isaacs, who will show up at some point, but I was like, wait, why? When I saw the opening credits, I was like, why are they doing this? I mean, I guess it's okay, but it seems like it's, oh, you know what? It's because they're going to they're gonna kill Michelle Yeoh, which we all know they're going to do. And then when they introduce Jason Isaacs at the end and the new ship, then we'll have the real credits and the real theme song. And then we get to the end of the second episode, it's like, oh no, we're going to do a whole trial and a whole, I don't care about any of this. Just get this interesting character onto a ship and adventures in space, please. So maybe I'm just not original enough, maybe I'm not creative enough, but I really was surprised um, at how, despite liking a lot of the elements of this this two-part premiere, how checked out I was by the end, because I just, I don't care to follow her misadventures. I thought this was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, like I tweeted that it felt reminded me a lot of about like Mass Effect, which is a really good video game. Well, was a really good video game series. It's not anymore because the drama just sucked. But this was just aggressively bad for me in a lot of ways. Like there were instances of spectacle I really enjoyed and special effects like an uncloaked Klingon ship crashing into a Federation ship. I thought was kind of pretty cool. <laughs> but then there was also stuff like Michael doing a Vulcan nerve pinch on Michelle Yeoh and committing mutiny at the end of the first episode. And that's when I realized I was just like, oh, our protagonist is the antagonist in literally any other Trek episode who needs a stern talking to from Kirk or Picard. She's Ensign Rowe. Right. And I just went, this, I don't, I don't, this isn't what I turned into Star Trek for? Yeah. This isn't what Star Trek is for me. And like, I, every time I talked about it with someone else, I always prefaced it by saying like, Star Trek is not a massive intellectual property for me. This is not a franchise that means a significant amount to me. Next Generation as a whole means a lot to me, as I really love Next Generation, and that I identify with a number of the characters, and that a number of people like my age, like, Next Generation is our thing. But I was always more of a Star Wars fan than a Star Trek fan, like, as a broad microscope, and Kate's shaking her boo. head. I mean, boo. I like Star Wars, but not the prequels, but still, but boo. Boo-boo. And I understand that. I appreciate that. 
so but so like this idea of like star trek to me is very driven by what basically next generation is and to a lesser extent what the original series is i don't really feel like discovery is either of those things (laughs) and it was really frustrating watching this sort of a like we're gonna shoot someone out of a ship and we're going to have them do a quick circle around the ship. And we're going to have an invert military conflict. And all this stuff. And then just the fact that this takes place ten years before the original series just boggles my brain, Kate. Yeah. On a timeline continuity level. On the technology just, continuity level. <laughs> and from a costuming t- yeah. level. It yeah. just hurts my brain a lot. But that's neither here nor there unless we want to get really nitty gritty. But for these two episodes, I just went, it was really weird for me that the show wanted me to root for someone who would be an antagonist, basically. Okay. Within the Star Trek universe, and and like an episodic Star Trek universe type of thing. And I think there's plenty of drama to be mined with that. And I think to your point that Martin Green is really, can, will hopefully be really good. I feel like the only person early actor who's deeply comfortable with anything happening in this is Doug Jones mm-hmm. as Saru is like the only one who's deeply comfortable with anything that's happening in these He's two like, episodes. I got this guys. This yeah, is my no, realm. Doug jo- right. Doug Jones is very much like, Oh, thank God I can be under prosthetics because I did like two or three episodes of like arrow and flash without prosthetics. And it was deeply uncomfortable for me, but um, now I have like an alien to play well, and as, it works. As a viewer, I really wish we'd gotten to see more of him without prosthetics. I was very, listeners may remember, I was very excited to see Doug Jones without prosthetics for once. Um, but, <laughs> um, yeah, but, that's interesting. Yeah. I didn't have as negative a reaction as you did to her as the central figure. Um, and I, I don't think that they, I think they misjudged the move of her Vulcan nerve pinch on the captain because uh, they wanted to go for something shocking, clearly. But I think they right. misjudged our level of commitment to her and to the relationship. Right, As- they do, because it happens so fucking quickly. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't I don't buy this at all as a betrayal because I barely know either of these people. <laughs> yeah, I just kept thinking of like imagine this is Riker and Picard right. like in seasons whatever, you know, like that kind of a thing, the dynamic. Um now imagine if they had done I don't know if they would have been really good, but imagine if they point. had done a season of the show and then they had ended the season with this. Yeah. Then we'd be invested in it. Then it would have been shocking. Then people would, people would have been really upset they killed the show. Or maybe they would have felt like they knew the characters by then. So this motivation made sense and everything. Um, but yeah, it certainly doesn't work as well as they want it to. But I do think they did enough groundwork for me to understand her. No? Yes. Yeah, but the fact that they have to do so much heavy lifting to justify that in the first episode. Yeah, it's too much to put on a first episode. It's way too much to put on a first episode, and I think it explains why so much of that first episode, for me, feels really stilted, because it's so much expository speak, Mm -hmm. and so much, this is how we feel about one another, and this is how we feel about the Federation, and I, I, I... 
Kate, I could really do without Sarek being involved in any of this. Could have literally <laughs> been any Vulcan. But no, it's just like, we need some connection. So Sarek, we guess? And it's just like, oh, God, no, I did not need this to be Sarek. <laughs> um, I will say that I liked the, um, well, yeah, I agree. The cap- I, I like the uniforms, though. The lack of the color thing is very strange. Um, that's why would you jettison that in your costuming like anyways like uh, enterprise has it for the love of god (laughs) yeah yeah it's very strange um but i do like a lot of the um i like i like the setup we get of i would be i think i would like the show that exists in the ether before this episode of this crew going on these adventures you know i think i would have enjoyed that show um when they when they set up, oh, the one thing you can't do is you can't kill him because then he becomes a martyr, and then they have her do that, and the, like it's just so heavy handed and to and also to kill Michelle Yeoh, they didn't need to kill Michelle Yeoh. The only reason they kill Michelle Yeoh is so that she will have enough motivation to do the one thing she knows she shouldn't do, but it doesn't make any sense because we don't know the character well enough to. To, to to first give her the, okay, you betrayed your captain, and then immediately after be like, okay, you also know that this is the one thing that you can't do and you're going to do it. You know, like, you don't, I don't think you get to necessarily do both if they aren't coming from the same place. One is coming from pure logic, one's coming from pure emotion, and maybe that's what they're looking for. The, the parallel of those two things, the two extremes of the pure logic of the Vulcans and the pure emotion of theoretically the humans, but, like, it, it's not, I don't think... <laughs> I don't get the sense that that was an intentional counterpoint they were trying to draw. I feel like I'm doing the heavy lifting there more than the show is doing it for me there. Um, and, and, and all that serves to do is to get me to not, to disengage from this central character because she's stupid um, to do that. So, like, I, they really, you, you had to kill off your only female captain of color? Really? Really? So You could right, just have... So- have uh you know ha- have our main character get you know be right but then um get you know in, in that that it just deteriorated started the war and now she's a mutineer so she gets kicked like there were so many other ways you could have done this without killing michelle yo and the oh god it's really it's just really it's just really frustrating um i do um I do, I know that I shouldn't be wondering about this, but I can't help but wonder where the points of conflict were with Fuller and the rest of the creative team. Um, I want to think that that's the kind of thing he wouldn't wanted to do, but who knows? Um, but the, you know, maybe it's something that's coming later in the season that was there yeah. butting heads. I know a big sticking point, according to one of those, the article, I think it was at Entertainment Weekly talking about the, his split with the show, was that he w- insisted on Snooker Martin-Green for the lead, which delayed the filming because she was doing Walking Dead. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's just, I feel like there are better ways to get to where they went than this. Um, at least based on these first two episodes. Um, is there anything that you enjoy about these? Well, let me, like, sort of address what you were talking about first before i get to maybe stuff i enjoyed um so i think it's not just a writing issue regarding michael um vulcan human stuff yeah 
I think that Martin Green really struggles to reconcile both of those impulses in a way that works, especially within the confines of these episodes. And that's going to be a really difficult balance for her to achieve, especially when you consider that the show, I suspect, is going to make this a much bigger part of Michael's characterization than they necessarily did, like, Spock's. Mm -hmm. And which I think is very much what's going to happen here, uh, based on, again, on the fact that she commits mutiny for emotional reasons, but then... Is able to convince the ship's computer (laughs) to logically allow her to escape her prison cell. Mm -hmm. Which is cool. Mm -hmm. But neither the show nor the performer are able to reconcile how these two elements are supposed to work in tandem, let and can only conceptualize them in isolation from one another. And that's a major problem from just a conceptualization standpoint. Mm -hmm. To your point about Michelle Yeoh, um, my friend was watching it with a couple of her friends um, Wednesday, Wednesday, and she texted me and this is like the best explanation for everything that happened with Michelle Yeoh's character is Michelle Yeoh deserves a real Star Trek. Yeah. And God Lord does she. Because, like, everything that I'm sort of learning about um, Yo's character, I just go, no, I want to spend time with her in this version of the show that builds up to this. Yeah. As opposed to this version of the show that goes, I've been considering you for a number one candidacy, or, well, for a captain candidacy, but you're clearly not ready. But also, look how cool I am with this thing in the sand. Yeah. And... All of this stuff where I just go, Michelle Yeoh deserves significantly better than this. But in my brain, I always knew that Michelle Yeoh was not long for this show because she's just too expensive. Mm -hmm. Like if she was, if this was on Netflix, then I would totally be sort of surprised if they killed Michelle Yeoh off two episodes in. But because it's not Netflix and it's CBS all access and they don't have that kind of money. (laughs) They can afford to pay a multinational superstar like Michelle Yeoh, but particularly a superstar with her cachet in the Chinese market. I'm not surprised. I'm deeply disappointed, but I'm not surprised. Well, as soon as it was announced that, that she was playing a captain and she was recurring and Jason Isaacs was also playing a captain. Exactly. It's like, hmm, why is she changing ships? What Mm. could cause this loyal character to change ships? Um, yeah. So there's that, but, but the other thing is in, they didn't, they didn't need to kill the character to write her off. And she, is she, like, fully dead, or is she just, like, sort of, like, mostly dead? Well... And can come back, and... There's no life signs, but they leave her body there. So, who knows what level of technology they have. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's just very, it's deeply frustrating to identify this problem in the Trek universe, and to directly address it, and as that having been something that Brian Fuller's been saying he wants to do... For literally, like, at least 
at least 10 years, right? Like, he's yeah. been saying this for a long time. And then to yeah. kill her off immediately as, like, the, 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 the MacGuffin, the setup of your larger your show. I mean, it's, just, it's just really, really frustrating. And if, it if, is. if the rest of the stuff was amazing, maybe it wouldn't bother as much. It probably still would. But, yeah. like... Everything, you know, no, what have we not talked about? We're like 20 minutes into our discussion here. Have we mentioned the Klingons? No, because no. what we get here with them is really stupid. Why did they redesign the Klingons? Well, see, that's the thing is like, I have to defer to you on this because it's just like, I, I, I'm thanks to Enterprise, mm-hmm. I am sort of aware of like Klingons and makeups and that sort of thing because here's where I admit I don't think I've actually ever seen a Klingon episode of TOS. Oh, well, yeah, but they look different in TOS than they do in right. TNG. TNG took care of that. It was right. really funny. Yeah. Um, and then there's there's some stuff with Enterprise. They give an actual answer to that, and it was right. stupid. Um, right. But then they redesigned them like, again, just again, to make them right. different and, and to be, like, special. It's just like they got rid right. of the color-coordinated outfits to be special. That's that's a stupid reason. Right. And, I mean, it's it's all sort of just... In a lot of ways, from the the fact that this feels like a a Trek show by accident, mm-hmm. to the opening sequence, which is just crap, um, to how these like this weird sort of religious sect of the Klingons are. Uh, done through prosthetics and through like vocalization and through how they're talking to one another it aggressively feels in even to a more extent than certain aspects of Enterprise feel like a show that's intended to get people who don't watch Star Trek to watch Star Trek yeah and that's kind of not the point of Star Trek yeah even to me, again, as someone who basically goes, Next Generation is pretty much sort of the end-all be-all of my Trek experience, apart from large swaths of Voyager and then large, not large, but medium swaths of Enterprise that I forced myself to watch because I made Kate watch it so that we could talk to Caroline about it last <laughs> year, that this doesn't feel like Star Trek in any way, shape, or form to me. And none of the choices that they're making reinforce that idea. And I just, it feels really weird. Yeah, they're trying to fix what's not broken about Star Trek. Right, exactly. There's stuff that is. Fix that. Yes, no, it's just like diversity, representation of different sexual orientations. Any number of things that you can talk about that are lacking within Star Trek. And these are just the things I can name off the top of my head as someone who is not engaged with this is a property and go, these are all things that you can fix. And then we just go, but what if we do like a cold war thing with a, a anti-hero esque protagonist? I feel like that solves our problems right there, guys. And it's just like, no, that does, that does not solve any of your problems. That creates new problems. <laughs> <laughs> now, have you seen any deep space nine? No. Um, well, no is correct and incorrect insofar as I've watched like five to eight episodes of the first season mm-hmm. and then just went, this is a really big slog in a way that the first season of Next Generation was not a slog for me. Seriously? So, the first season yeah. of Next Gen is terrible. It's so yeah. bad. 
but I was able to latch onto it in a way that I was not able to latch oh, onto um, Deep Space Nine. Yeah. And I will also follow up the fact that a lot of Avery Brooks's performances, I'm sure it gets better, is really rough for me in mm. like the first season. And also, this is also a big hurdle for me. I really don't like the Ferengi, Kate. I yeah. really do not like the Ferengi. Yeah. And they're so central to Deep Space Nine. They're very <laughs> central. Okay. So here, here's what I'll say. Based on some of the things you're saying, I think you would like DS9. But skip all right, the Ferengi-centric sure episodes. <laughs> and um, maybe, like, do look for one of the, the pick-a-mix of, like, like, best episodes to check out. Okay. Um, I have seen a few people commenting on, on Twitter that the notion that Discovery is pushing, oh, look look at us, we're so diverse, we're so great, we fixed Star Trek, right? It's like, guys, you, do you remember Deep Space Nine was right, a thing? exactly. Like, yeah. you know, like, that was a significant thing they had they had the black captain and they they had Which you know no one on the show seems to be on, on discovery seems to be aware of apparently uh the, yeah the production team yeah um and also they you know they they, they had uh the old man who was uh, right gender fluid yeah, character yeah, because right. like she was curzon and then she was jadzia and it's like it's so like there's there's a lot there <laughs> yeah really there terrific. is um but so so yeah, I, I think you. I think you would enjoy that. Uh, they also have some really terrific stuff with Nog and Rom, who are Frankie characters that gets developed over time. Just skipped all those Frankie centric ones because the Frankie characters that are on DS Nine that are the regular characters are terrific. Um, I, I I really like them. I really like Quark and Rom and Nog. Um, but but in general, though, I. I hear you because you're you're not wrong. There's such um, broad racial caricatures that it hurts a lot. Yeah, no, I as yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. it's a problem. Well, it's a it's there's significant problems with race throughout throughout all of Trek. Um, yeah, you know, it's very much like again this idea of white people being super clever about talking about race, you know, without yeah. talking to any. Not white people, um, uh, or just in the original series, just having and and TNG too, also having some really unfortunate one for ones that yeah. can show up, and that's just it's bad, it's bad. Um, but yeah, again, for me, it just it goes back to this idea of not necessarily having a sense of what everybody likes about Star Trek, and and not necessarily treating that as something to celebrate. Um, and that you can do that while also feeling fresh and new and attracting a different audience. But if if you lose your core, then then you'll have right. nothing. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll see what happens with it. I'll probably still keep following it, but right. certainly I won't. We won't be talking about it week to week on the podcast. I don't think. Are you going to keep probably watching? Probably not. I'm gonna like see. That was sort of like my brain process of is Kate. If Kate's going to keep watching, I will keep watching. Um, because, like, asking, like, what I liked is, like, basically boils down to Michelle Yeoh, who is dead. Yeah. And Doug Jones' performance, which, um, A, Doug Jones has gotten much better as, like, a vocal actor. Mm -hmm. And uh, without having, without having to, like, rely on motion and stuff, even though he really does rely on that a lot with Saru, but there's Mm -hmm. still vocal delivery that is something that he's had to hone over like the past decade in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and i really like his performance but it's also like the realization that we're about to get another new show in episode three of like 
This is what this show is actually going to be. Sorry for the two episodes of Prelude, everyone. Well, how long do you think it's going to take for her to get onto the Jason Isaacs ship? Because there's no sense for me that that's necessarily happening in the next episode. How long is it going to take her to get to the next ship? If it doesn't happen in the next next episode, Kate, I will probably quit. (laughs) Yeah, I don't don't anticipate that it will. Yeah, because, like, I mean... I don't have a reason to keep paying for all access. Yeah, yeah. And my 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 seven day trial expires like Monday, so yeah. it's like is basically yeah. my response. If she's not on Discovery, yeah, by episode three, I'm sort of going to be like, guys, I don't know how much time I can give you here, because um, there are other things for me to watch right now. Yeah, I mean, I think all you need to point to is, like, I'm, like, yeah, I don't really need to follow that character by herself in isolation. That's not as interesting to me. That character in the context of the ship is interesting, especially with Michelle right. Yeoh. But that character by herself, like, just on a planet, and she's going to get tried for treason, and then she's going to be in a prison camp, and then she's going to be, like, no, there's not enough there there yet. He's, he's yeah. the, I like the performance a lot more than you do, but still, there's not yeah. enough there there. So there's that's me. And then my dad, uh, he had seen, he, he was able to, to, to catch up with it. He's like, yeah, it was, it was good. It was interesting, but not enough that I'm going to pay for it. Yeah. And that's, that's someone who like has fond remembrances of watching original series Trek and TNG and DS9 and power through much, much of Voyager and even Enterprise. So like, that's a lifelong Trek guy and he's not going to pay for all access. So who is? Yeah, and I, I think that's a big question because, like, the important thing to remember is that before all the behind-the-scenes started is that, much like Star Trek Voyager, this was intended as a selling point for CBS All Access. This was intended as a way to get people to buy into CBS All Access in the same mm-hmm. way Voyager was intended to launch UPN. Mm-hmm. This is a terrible way to think about the fact that this was going to be how you launch your streaming service. And I immediately go, but The Good Fight did a much better job of convincing people to buy CBS All yes, Access. it did. And yeah, because I mean, we haven't even talked about like the show's aesthetics and the fact that the Shinzu is apparently a really old ship. And I promptly went, that doesn't seem right in any way, shape, or form because that bridge is fucking massive, Kate. <laughs> and seems entirely designed to emphasize lens flares yeah. as opposed to literally anything else. Yeah. Well, and we also haven't talked about it, but it's it, it's disheartening to me that this is the first bad Star Trek theme. Because the Enterprise theme doesn't exist because it's that hor- it's that horrible. But th- the Star Trek theme for this, and, and I enjoy Jeff Russo. It's composed by Jeff Russo. He's done a lot of really terrific compositions and composing yeah. on TV over the past like decade. But like, it starts promisingly. It starts to do like the TNG opening, and then it goes up instead yes. of going down. And but then it goes into this other thing that's like there's thing no melody, and it's just like right. There's I don't know nothing. what that is. No, yeah. there's nothing. There's nothing to it. And it's complemented for me, like by the visuals of going like, here's a tricorder, here's a spacesuit, here's a phaser, and it's just like I know what all this stuff is. Literally, everyone knows what this stuff is. Yeah. Well, and and that was then my theory is like, oh, when she gets to the discovery, the show will click in, and then maybe there's a diff. I would like to believe that there's not because it costs too much. But like this idea that now we're gonna have the real theme song and the real opening credits and like. That you know, but but it's just again, why are you 
Like when people, when an enterprise is like, you know what we need? We need a pop song for our theme song. It's like, you're breaking what was not broken. You're fixing what was not broken. Same thing you hear. Yeah. They're like, ah, oh, we need to go back to the instrumental theme because everybody hated the enterprise once. Like, yes. Now, if you remember, all the other, all the other Star Trek themes had this sense of adventure and energy to their their themes and momentum and it got you excited to watch what you were gonna see next and there was a stateliness to the ds9 theme because that was about much more politics and and right and, and there was there was there was a lot more uh uh like energy and old like with the weird uh, da, 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 to the original star trek because it was some right. more experimental and new like like I honestly, somebody please pay me to write an analysis of the different Star Trek themes. I tweeted about this. I would love to get paid to do that, and right. I absolutely have the expertise to do it. I've pitched it before, and it's not gotten taken. So please do pay right. me because I would love to write about it. But like, like then you look at what what does this say about the show? Nothing. Nothing. It doesn't say anything. And like I keep going back to like even like Voyager's opening, and I like the Voyager opening like song perfectly fine. Yeah, but. I like that image of Voyager cutting through that nebula cloud. Yeah. Because that's Voyager right there. Yeah. That entire, that that little, that shot of Voyager piercing through that cloud. That's Voyager. That's all you need is them piercing through the literal murky unknown. That's yeah. all you need. That's Voyager. Perfect. Yeah. And there's no sense of what Discovery is because there's no sense of Discovery. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yep. So many problems. Okay. Well, this ended up being a lengthier conversation than we thought we were going to have. No, about it's this okay one. though because it it was it was for me deeply frustrating. Yeah. But I'm glad that you, as a much more like invested Star Trek fan, mm-hmm. was a little warmer on it than I was because every time I talked to someone, I was just like, "But I really want to know what Kate thought." Yeah. Yeah, we'll see what happens with it. Um if if we end up watching the whole season, maybe we'll do a end of season. It's fifteen discussion. episodes. It's 15. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Let's not get too uh yeah. Uh, let's get let's not get too hot on that. Um but I do look forward to talking with some, you know, friends of the show, uh, who are big Trekkies about this one and hopefully uh listeners, if you're a Trekkie or Trekker or et cetera reach out and let us know what you thought of this. Are we alone? I don't think we're alone. I haven't sought out a bunch of reviews. I try not to seek out too many reviews so I don't end up repeating other people. But, um, yeah, I don't think we're alone on this one. Anyways, a few show notes. You can find a post for this episode over at thetelevers.org, which is the website for the podcast. You can reach us there, start up a conversation, let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can find us on iTunes with an M4A chapter feed and MP3 on chapter feed. And it should be fixed by now. I need to double check. But we had the the feed changed. You might need to unsubscribe and resubscribe. Um, I had to do that in my app, my podcast catching app, but then it was fine. Um, Or you can click at the website in the post for this episode. You can click on the MP3 feed. Little text says MP3 feed. Click on it, and that'll take you to the correct mp3 rss feed so you can subscribe to that and then you'll know that you're you're staying caught up with the podcast um you can also find us on stitcher with our m4a feed the m4a feed has chapter breaks you can just skip between shows the mp3 feed does not have that um because some devices don't play m4as um so those that's why we have the two different feeds subscribe to whatever is most convenient for you you can also of course email us at televerse at gmail.com you can like our page on facebook start up a conversation there and of course we are both on twitter i am at the televerse and noel you are at Noel or Kay. 
And that will wrap up this week's episode. Thank you as ever, Noel. Thank uh, you. We ended up going really long for... We did. <laughs> for an episode that I thought would go an hour less than what we were what we did yeah but we had we had so many thoughts and feels about these shows yeah you know, you know in different ways i look forward to to hearing what people think about this week's uh, tv so do reach out everybody um thank you noel and thank you everyone for listening we'll be back next week with another episode of the televerse mm-hmm.